to talk at women in language. It was, it was totally different. I mean, like, I watched all of them. And there was, like, a few people here and there that stood out, and you were one of them. And I was like, oh, I need to interview Aaron. I, I like what what you had to say because it was something new and it was different. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that. I, I Honestly, it's not a topic I talk about very often. Like, my background is more in historical linguistics and Middle Eastern linguistics. And so to talk about, you know, gender and language was honestly a little bit new for me, so... Now, I was just curious, how did you get started with, uh, you know, wanting to dive into, you know, your, you know, into languages, especially, specifically Middle Eastern languages? Um, honestly, it was kind of, you know, by accident. Um, I was raised in a really sort of rural area and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was completely monolingual. It was, uh, the town I lived in was even like lingually or legally monolingual. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't know. I just, I really wanted to see what was out there besides, you know, rural Maryland and, and English speakers. And so I started, you know, I wanted to travel. I started learning languages in school with Spanish and it just sort of took off from there. And then honestly, Arabic was just kind of an experiment. I was a freshman in college. Um, the opportunity was there. I was going to study Spanish, Chinese, and French, and I wanted to work for the UN. And there was the opportunity to take an Arabic class and a Middle Eastern history or intro to Islamic civilization. Mm-hmm. And so I took them and I just, I fell in love with Arabic. I liked it more than Chinese. And so I just ran with it. And here I am 11 years later and this is my yeah, career. That's so awesome. It worked out. That is so freaking awesome because, like, right now I'm I'm independently studying um, Arabic, and because I live in Akron, we have an, a large Arab community, mm-hmm. and I've spoken a little bit of Levantine, a little bit of Egyptian because every time I turn around, it's either somebody from Egypt or somebody from Lebanon or somebody from Palestine yeah. or someone from Jordan. I don't think <laughs> I've met anyone from Syria yet, but I have met someone from Yemen and Iraq. Okay. And Iran. Yeah. So, so a separate language, but yeah. Right. right. <laughs> so for me, it was just like I've always had an affinity for uh, the Middle East and Africa in general and Asia because my mom had introduced me to, uh, you know, African culture and Asian culture uh, when I was little. And because evidently in the American school system, like, you don't really learn a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, I remember I took world history in high school, and um, it was just regular world history. And my professor right. also taught, like, AP world history, the advanced mm-hmm. placement class, mm-hmm. and he wanted me to take it. And I asked him, I was like, well, how is this different? And he goes, AP world history is actually world history. World history, according to the standard American school system, is like intro to European civilization or like a college intro to Western civilization. Right. Plus talk about China here and there. And then AP world history, like you actually barely touch Europe. You talk about Africa, you talk about the Middle East, you talk about East Asia. Um, right. But even then they don't do a lot with like ancient or uh, medieval uh, South America. And so right. you know, never discuss Mayans or Incans or anything like that. So you're right. The U S school system is super biased in a lot of what it teaches. Even, 
even, you know, just where I grew up, granted, it was rural and poor, but, like, we only taught Spanish. We had a French professor who offered, like, two semesters of French and two semesters of Latin, and um, I taught myself through the first two semesters of French. So when I finally came to her and was like, oh, you know, I would really like to study French and, like, take a class, she told me, you know, well, we can see if I can give you an independent study, and even then they're going to make you sit, like, you'll have to be here during the French 1 class, and I'll just make you do quiet work by yourself. Like, that was, I mean, that was even my advanced Spanish courses. We had Spanish, like, 1, 2, and 3, right. and 4. And then when I went to do Spanish 5 and AP Spanish or AP Spanish Literature, mm-hmm. like, those were all independent studies. I just, I sat in the back corner of a classroom, and I read Spanish Literature, and every week I handed in some essays to my professor, you know. Um, I know some parts of the U.S. are doing better, you know usually more affluent areas or more diverse areas, like larger cities. Like, I grew up in rural northern Maryland, but I know people Mm -hmm. in southern Maryland had access to languages like Mandarin and Arabic in high school. Mm -hmm. But, you know, those are nicer places. It's certainly not a widespread phenomenon in the U.S. Right. Yeah, because I noticed, like, when I was coming up in the the education system, it was – it sucked. (laughs) <laughs> I really didn't have an education like most people. And so I literally had to teach myself everything because they didn't want to teach. You know, yeah. They just wanted to get paid for what they call teaching. And, yeah. you know, you don't have government. You don't have your sciences. You don't have algebra, trigonometry, geometry. You don't even have foreign language because they assume you're not capable of learning and you know you go to college and excel then it's another story so yeah for me um i've always been a history buff anyway and uh a genealogy buff and philosophy buff and the arts and and languages was something i really wanted to pursue but never actually had any opportunity to do so until I went to college, and even when I went to community college to start off with, they only had Spanish, one, you know, 10, 10, 10, 20, 20, 10, 20, 20. Yeah. The rest of it was you need to go downtown or you need to go on the west side of Cleveland. And, you know, that would take like two buses. And I'm just yeah. like, uh, no. So <laughs> it it was, you know, I took Spanish, but it wasn't my language of choice, I would say. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy it for the cultural aspects of it, mm-hmm. like the dancing, the food, yeah. the music, stuff like that. Yeah. But I really, I guess because it wasn't my language of choice and I just needed it for my degree requirement, I I learned it. But I felt more satisfaction from it just from listening to, like, the music and stuff. I really, I really wasn't like, I want to use this to... For work purposes or, you know, I would have rather learned Russian or Italian or French or Arabic or something. Yeah. More so yeah. than because, it, you know, the two languages in the U.S. that are spoken the most are English and Spanish. And not even people that are in the Latina community, not all of them speak Spanish because their parents want them to speak English because they wanted to be Americanized because they yeah. knew English was the more dominant language. But yet, still, you still need Spanish because there's some people that don't speak Spanish. I mean, English, rather. English, yeah. Right, right. And so, you know, they learn 
you know, their their kids are their, you know, interpreters because, you know, they they never really picked up the language. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, but there are people that are the complete opposite, too, where they come in here and they really want to learn English and they want to assimilate so they can have a better life, so forth and so on. I mean, there's there's so much of that, though, like, and there's still a lot of cultural appropriation that's going on and. Yeah. Oh, you can't speak. I mean, because right now the languages people are fearing in this country, and this is really sad. Spanish, Arabic, Mandarin, and Russian. Yeah. And I was like, well, why? When these people helped build this country. Oh, yeah. I think it's something that we've lost a lot of in the U.S. is, um, I know some people, like, I I think the U.S. sits in a weird place because... We talk about being a melting pot, and then in more recent years, we, to a certain extent, I think members of our community, both mm-hmm. politically and socially, have now become afraid of our diversity, right? Uh, and sort of want to move more towards this assimilationist kind of thing that we see in parts of Europe, for example, like places like Sweden and France sometimes are very assimilationist to their immigrant communities. Um, and there is something, I think, personally about, I don't like to use the word assimilate, but I think there's an American identity as being part of the United States and being an American, and you can share that identity, but then still maintain your own ethnic background for people right. who are immigrants or who are first-generation immigrants, um, all the way down to people who are eighth and ninth and tenth-generation immigrants. In my case, my family never was close to their background or their heritage, so we grew up, we were American. That's all it ever was. I mean, we knew we were German and, and English, and we, you know, those are the kind of foods we ate because Northern Maryland, Southern Central Pennsylvania, you know, there's some Amish background, there's a lot of Germans and English, um, so that was sort of it. But I wasn't, you know, my family was never like a, you know, I'm part Irish, you know, the way a lot of Americans get really into it. Or, you know, my great-great-grandmother spoke German with me or something. Like, nobody spoke anything besides English, with, you know, in my family. But right. I think I think a lot of us have sort of lost sort of how do we walk that line of being, if we can use the word assimilationist, being sort of assimilationist into a broader, diverse American identity while maintaining our own individual ethnic heritages and things like that. Right. And, and honestly, it's a hard thing to do. I mean, it's I people struggle with it all the time. And, and you're right. You see this a lot in, you know, first generations um, who have been born here. Like I have a lot of Arab friends who they were raised speaking Arabic, but it's not as good as if they were raised in the Arab world. Right. Um, and you're right. They end up being interpreters for their parents, or um, it's a it's a tough place to be in. And personally, you know, it's not something I can even really speak to because it's not my own experience. I just have a lot of friends who have been through it. But it's right. it's a weird line to walk. But I think generally, the way our country has moved is we've ceased to appreciate a lot of our diversities and our heritages in many ways, and. Um, and I think this reflects, for example, like in our educational system that we've, you know, we've we've cut back on things like foreign language spending or we've cut back on things like, you know, teaching histories and, and stuff like that. You know, we teach the bare minimum in public oh, yeah. schools and, and that's sort of it. And even the bare minimum people don't appreciate. I don't know. 
how many times I heard people complain about even having to take like two semesters of Spanish in high school. And, you know, and now I, I was similar to you. I loved Spanish when I learned it. I really did. And I got to go to South America. My family was very religious and I learned Spanish working with missions groups during mm-hmm. the summers. And, um, now it's something that like as a queer person, I sort of, I sort of hesitate to say because I feel bad about it. But I mean, it was a good opportunity. I got to go to Peru four times. I've worked as an interpreter. My Spanish was much better back then. It's gotten a little rusty now. But even though I don't work with Spanish professionally and I feel much more love for the Middle Eastern languages that I built a career out of, I am so thankful for the, you know, for knowing Spanish. I don't question it. I just, you know, I live in Florida. Um, I live in Tampa, which isn't as diverse as, say, Orlando or Miami or something, but we have, like, a large Cuban community here and stuff, and I don't even have to think about it. If I see Spanish on a sign, if I walk into a restaurant, people are speaking Spanish, it's almost like a second mother language to me, because it's oh, been yeah, in my life exactly for, for, for 16 years now. It's just I don't mm-hmm. even think about it. Right. Um, and so I'm thankful for that. I think at the time when I learned it, I was much more happy about it, but mm-hmm. I just, I look back at, at my classmates who would complain about, you know, learning even something as easy as, like, basics, like, you know, being like, hola, como estas? Right. And I'm not even talking about learning the imperfect subjunctive, like, those like those kids right. never even made it to Spanish 3 or 4, where you learn the imperfect subjunctive, and I remember hating the imperfect subjunctive as yeah, a It's so funny you say that, because well, I yeah. was so good with the grammar of Spanish. It was unreal. Like, I was correcting people's pronunciation. I was like, wait, th- this is what you meant to say. Yeah. You didn't mean to say a certain word, a certain curse word. You meant to say this. <laughs> you know, and, and they were like, well, how do you? I was like, I spent like 12 and a half hours per week on Spanish. Yeah. And, you know, like, two and a half of those hours were just class time. The other 10 hours was just me sitting with a tutor in the learning center, having them read me the stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, I found things outside of it that I enjoyed because I love Shakira, Ricky Martin, Enrique Iglesias, Santana. I still listen to that music today. So for me, that was more important. And I love the food. And my godmother's half black, half Puerto Rican. Oh, well, then, so, yeah, that's so, great with that house. <laughs> yeah, so so it was kind of, you know, I kind of, it was like my third language because my, my second language was American Sign Language because mm-hmm. um, I went to school with a bunch of deaf kids and a friend of mine taught me sign language when I was five. Okay. But I, I remember a handful of signs today at 43. Yeah. But aside from that, um, you know, I pull it out every once in a while and, and use it if I'm around someone that's deaf, but otherwise, you know, um, my, I would say my first language I taught myself was Russian and with just audio and, you know, just a lot of free resources and a lot of talking to people. And I did that for a year and I did a lot of listening for like 5,544 hours worth of listening. I bet. And the background. You know, so I would listen to podcasts. I would listen to President Putin speak. I would listen to this person and that person. And it got to the point where after two, two and a half years, I was able to understand toast the way, you know, by yeah. not there. Audio Kaniga. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, you know, that was Russian was my love along with French, Italian. And then I fell in love with Arabic. Yeah. So, so now I'm learning. I'm kind of learning three different dialects of Arabic and of course, there's some controversy over that too. 
Should you learn modern standard first or should you learn Levantine and then Egyptian? And I'm like, well, I, I kind of learned all, I'm kind of learning all three. And I mean, the vocabulary overlaps. And, yeah. You know, you might have different words for and, ooh, and Levantine and way and, and Egyptian. And, you know, you you have this, this, and this. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, it's enta, enti, entu. You know, and then you, you know, so I was like, you know, they might say merhaba or they might say ahlan, you know, or whatever, you know, depending on who you're, what country you're talking about. But at the same time, they still understand what you're saying. You know, you still know how to say shukra and ahlan. And, yeah. You know, okay, well, you know, bukran, beke, ala erabea, sway, you know. <laughs> So, yeah, but I think that's where you have sort of a very unique experience because I think um, I don't know what word you prefer. Do you use the word visually impaired or? Oh yeah, I use that all okay. the time. Okay, okay. Well, like as as a as a visually impaired person, like it's it's harder to rely on because like so people who aren't visually impaired, like myself, we tend to in language classes rely on reading, reading and writing. And that, right. so you, so you meet people who do language study, who study languages for years and they can't speak at all. Right. And they always do reading and writing. And I, as a teacher, cause I've taught privately for probably almost 10 years now. And I taught Arabic mm-hmm. at a university for a few years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I still teach privately now. But my, my thing, day one, I would, you know, freshman in college come in there my first day of Arabic and be like, here are apps that you can go listen to Arabic music. Here are YouTube videos. Here are, uh, Netflix shows, YouTube shows, right. everything subtitled. I I know you're not going to understand a word of this for probably three years, but you need to start now. And this is like I still do this to myself. Like I even languages that I don't study actively anymore, like Bulgarian. I love Bulgarian music, so I have so many Bulgarian playlists, and I just right. have all these playlists because I put music on in the background. I watch Turkish TV shows. I I do all this, right. and I have a lot of people be like. Yeah, but is that necessary? And as a linguist, yes. I will often even fall into the sort of hole of being stuck on the writing because I love grammar and I love historical linguistics. But really, language at the end of the day is spoken first, and then we write it. And we don't right. do enough listening as language learners. And so you have almost the opposite experience where you're relying a lot more on listening. But then in Arabic, that's just like, I don't even know how people do that because... In Arabic, like, when we teach it at university level, we teach standard. And then oh, yeah. we start to include dialect, depending on how your program runs or how your teacher wants to go. We include dialect at a certain level. I usually started a little bit after a couple weeks. And then mm-hmm. we introduce it slowly. And then you eventually sort of study dialect on its own. When I studied Arabic 11 years ago, it was only standard for the first couple years. And then you learn dialect. Um, right. Now more and more universities do this side by side. We call it the integrated approach. And mm-hmm. when people ask me about, well, what dialect do I pick or do I need to study MSA? Like, this is the most controversial topic probably in Arabic language. Oh, my education. God, yes, it is. Well, I, my thing at the end of the day is two things. One, whatever dialect you want to learn is the dialect you want to learn. Like, if you want to go to Morocco, learn Moroccan. Right. That's right. fine. Now, can you use Moroccan in Syria? No. Not- but if all no. your friends are Moroccan and you want to travel to Morocco, then yes, you should learn Moroccan, and that's perfectly okay. If right. your goal is to learn that something that's more neutral, 
then you either go to something very neutral, which in my opinion, I think Jordanian, for example, is very neutral. That's the dialect I speak. But right. Egyptian, though it may not be as neutral sounding, it's well understood because Egypt right. was the center of Arab media for centuries, for decades. But then the question of what about MSA, you know, and I always tell students, like, if your long-term goal is to be fluent in Arabic, then yes, MSA too. You need to know MSA if you're going to read and write, if you're going to watch the news. But then you get the situation of you, for example, and it's like, well, Chanel's mostly going to be doing listening and speaking. So, but if you're using an audiobook, that was probably originally written in MSA and is being read aloud in MSA. So MSA is still important to you. And it right. just becomes a mess. <laughs> it really is. Right. Well, um, you know, it's funny you that, that. sort of like the, the, the different experience from the majority. Right. Well, I've been visually impaired all my life, so I'm partial. So I have a foot in each door and I was a large print reader from yeah. the time I was four up until I was about 32 years old. Okay. So, so I, I know what it's like to read print and write it longhand. However, the more my readable vision declined, the more I had to focus on audio. Now, audio was always a part of my life, all of my life. But uh-huh. I mostly was a, a large print reader for a, a, like three quarters of my life. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, it's like, you know, I understand it from, a visual, audio, and tactile. I did learn Braille, but when you're visually impaired, if you have residual vision, they want you to use that more so than Braille. Yeah. Because they look at it, you're in a sighted world, you're going to be dealing with sighted people, you're going to have to read and write print. And, I mean, there are some people that are, you know, because I don't know what it's like to be total. I only know what it's like to be partial. So yeah. if if I only can see out of my left eye, I can still watch TV. I just can't see the small details. Mm-hmm. So I see the bigger the bigger picture, not the smaller picture. So I mostly, you know, focus on the audio a lot more. Now, if I'm learning the alphabet, you know, I, I learn it auditorily. All so right. so for me, if I learn that, you know, uh, Alif and Da and Ba and Da and Ra and Gene, you know, mm-hmm. I learned all of that. Then, then, you know, I I put I picture it in my head. What what the sounds look like if they're describing what it looks. I mean, because evidently, me writing this stuff out longhand, it really will look sloppy. <laughs> well, I mean, so, don't feel bad about that. I have you know students who are not visually impaired that have awful Arabic handwriting, so that's completely normal. <laughs> what's so cool though is. Because I have I have devices I have a device where I could I can learn how to to write the Arabic script in Braille. However, like like I like you said, if you're not going to read like the Quran, or you're not going to read a history textbook, you're not going to focus on that first. You're going to focus on trying to get as much vocabulary and and, and phrases in your head and as much information as you possibly can get. Now, mind you, I just reviewed the Michelle Thomas Modern Standard Arabic course, which mm-hmm. took me like four days to go through. Yeah. And I learned, I mean, I was reluctant to do it at first, but then I was kind of happy that I did because, you know, it it made me really look at the differences in the grammar structure, you know, how, how things are said in a, you know, in a basic you know, formal way, mm-hmm. 
and, and it, I mean, they even say in the course that it's the basics. So you yeah. would have to do, keep going from there, which is fine. But I was able to kind of, you know, um, understand the differences between all three dialects, you know, just off of that one, one course. And because also they have the Egyptian Arabic, um, course for Michelle Thomas and, um, I reviewed all of them. And, yeah. you know, it, that was a very popular ep- couple episodes for me because, you know, people are really into, you know, Arabic and Hindi and, you know, the Asian languages like Mandarin and Japanese and Korean Thai, for mm-hmm. instance. And so, you know, I, for me, it gave me a, a more well-rounded view of, of how it's structured, you know, yeah. from a grammatic standpoint. Even if it's at its very, you know, basic fundamental level. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I was able to understand certain parts of the news because I actually did, you know, do this, this course, which I still have. And I can go back to, re- you know, refer to certain things that I might have forgotten. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I was able to understand the indirect and direct object pronouns, past, um, I and you. Yeah. And you, you, plural you know and you know for me personally i was like oh well this this isn't going to be this is this is going to be really um you know simple you know i i got this in my head now but i mean some of the some of the um you know vocabulary was universal Mm -hmm. so you know like medina and madrasa and um you know, Liena and, you know, on and just, you know, Aina and, you know, all of that. Yeah. So, so for me, that was a big deal, you know, not only as a language learner, but, you know, someone that helps people, you know, with their English, you know, I get to the point where if I spend about two years, two and a half years on this by itself with no interruptions for any other language, you know, I could do what I did with Russian and Spanish. Mm-hmm. If if they don't understand what I'm saying in English, I can communicate and say, hey, this is what I meant to say, you yeah. know, in, in Arabic. You know, and, and I mostly do these little missions where I'll learn enough to have a small conversation. Mm-hmm. And then I will go and order some food from a restaurant Yeah, in person. And people are like, well, that's so simple. I was like, do you know how long that takes to be able to, you know, make sure that, I mean, not to say that I'm, I know that the grammar is going to be 100% correct. Yeah. But the fact that I'm actually making an attempt to speak the language, a lot of people commend me for that because, you know, it's kind of like taboo for people to be going around speaking Arabic, especially if you're African American. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. So. <laughs> that, 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 that says a lot, but I mean, I, I love the people. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, yes, you can, I would say, love a language. It might not be your own language. I mean, like from a cultural standpoint, you might not be Arab, but you feel more connected to it because you have a a love for it for one reason or another. And so you you can kind of claim it 
mm-hmm. for your own with still having respect for the, oh, yeah. the, the you know, whoever's culture. Now, I yeah. mean, I always come and some people get offended by this, but I say, well, when you go over to another country, you need to make sure you understand their laws and their customs and how they dress and how they interact with each other, because all that's important. It's great to learn a language to want to speak it, but if you go over there blinded by American ignorance or Europe ignorance, and you get yourself into trouble and you don't know how to get yourself out of it, yeah, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know language and culture are fully inseparable. I mean, yeah, there's there's no way to separate language from culture and from the people who speak that language they're they're innately influenced by one another um and that's why you know if you're going to really learn a language you're 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 right you need to learn culture as well um it doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything in the culture it doesn't mean that you have to like everything within the culture but you know at the end of the day this is that culture and this is how people communicate or how people act um but i also think you're right that I think the other end of that is if you immerse yourself in a language so much, you know, at what point do you sort of get to own it in a way, but own it respectfully? Like, I've, right. I've built my whole career out of Arabic and out of Middle Eastern languages. I've been studying mm-hmm. Arabic for 11 years. I teach Arabic. I speak Arabic, you know, pretty much anybody would say I speak Arabic fluently. I might not be a native speaker, but I could go to the Arab world, live my life, I do just fine. I'm a translator. I'm a teacher. Um... And and so, for example, when I teach, and, th- and I've done this with Arabic, Spanish, and French as well, I often say, like, well, no, we don't say that. And I've had people push back at that by saying, like, well, but you're not Arab. And I'm like, okay, but there is a point where you are fluent enough as a speaker mm-hmm. where you sort of own that language and can say, that sounds weird to me. It is a very high level, like we're talking you know, actful superior or, you know, C1, C2, if we're using the CEFR standard, you know, I would never say in Portuguese, like, oh, well, we don't say that. I don't, I speak Portuguese decently. It's good conversational Portuguese, but not enough that I feel like it is a language that I can sort of own. I think the, the nervousness though is to, even though I can sort of own these languages as part of who I am now, Mm -hmm. and as a speaker and as a teacher of them, and say things like, well, we say this or that, I still have to, one, still be open to native speakers. I've had native speakers correct me. I make mistakes. Or I had I shared a phrase the other day. I had a native speaker message me. It was like, nobody says that. And I was like, one, yes, they do, because other native speakers taught me this. But two, please teach me the phrase that you say, because as a non-native speaker, I will never learn that phrase if I'm not exposed to it. By all means, teach me right. more. Um, and then the second concern is that level of at what point do you go from owning language and let it be a part of you to this concern now of cultural appropriation? Because right. no matter if I spend my whole life speaking Arabic and working as an Arabic interpreter and translator, and you know, even if I went and moved and lived permanently in the Arab world, I will never be Arab. This will never right. be my culture. Now, are there parts of it that I genuinely enjoy? Yes, I love Arab food. I love Arab music. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, when I hang out with Arab friends, do I maybe adapt certain types of sociolinguistic patterns and cultural norms? Yes. But I never get to speak for Arabs or as an Arab or claim Arab history and culture as my own. And this is very much a fine line to walk. And I think some people push back on language learners, especially 
um, white language learners, because we do come from a place of privilege, you know, they push back on us. But it's also, I can't, if I'm going to fully immerse myself in this language and embrace it and build mm-hmm. you know, my life around it, building this career around it, baking it a part of my everyday life. You know, I eat Arab food for breakfast. I listen to Arab music on the way to work. I work with Arabs in the company where I interpret and translate. You know, this is a part of my life. And so when people sort of, I've had people message me and comment and they're like, well, that's cultural appropriation. I'm like, well, you know, if, 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 if I stop myself doing everything that I do because of cultural appropriation, then I would never speak anything besides English and maybe German. And even at that point, my family is so far removed from Germany that it would probably be cultural appropriation for me to speak German and try to be German. I'm, I'm not. I'm none of those things. Right. But I think language is a universal tool that we use to communicate that it part of it does and will always remain with its native speakers and within right. that culture. But part of it is universal and we all get to take part in it and share in it. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I, I 100% agree. Like someone asked me, he was like, well, why are you so fixated on the East and the Middle East in particular? I was like, because if you're, my mom, um, wanted me to, to know about Asia and Africa and the Middle East. And, you know, I always have fascination with Russia, Italy, and France, just because mm-hmm. I just did. Um, and, you know, I know I'm not, of those, you know, cultures, but at the end of the day, you know, I feel a pull to it. So I, you know, there's a part of it that, that, that we can't explain. It is just a pull because I've had the same questions. Like, why do you do the Middle East or Western Asia? And because of the history of Orientalism and because of the history of colonialism, there's a lot of hesitance around, you know, Americans and Westerners, you know, doing too much in that region and I can understand when somebody would push back and be like, you know, I studied Arabic because I wanted to work in political science and do this or whatever. And, and and yes, those might be bad motives. But at the same time, like, I took Arabic for fun and I just genuinely fell in love with this language. And right. I love Middle Eastern history and I love other Middle Eastern languages. And I work on language contact. Like, I work on how Arabic influenced Persian and Turkish and, uh, you know, Persian Armenian influence and all this sort of stuff. Right. I didn't get to pick that. It's something I fell into, and it's something that makes me happy. Like, I'm not. not it's. I'm not a colonizer. I'm not an Orientalist. I just love what I love. You know. It's, right. It's just like you know. I. I'm. I'm a woman. Even if I was born biologically male, or, you know, when I lived my life as a man, I was attracted to men. You know, we don't get to pick the things that we fall in love with. We just right. fall in love with them. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I also took a world history course just for shits and giggles um, mm. five years ago because, of course, I didn't have world history in high school because I was denied it. Mm-hmm. And I took it. I did it in for in a year. But I'm going to be honest, out of all the history that I found fascinating, I mean, okay, no offense to Europe, but you get tired of hearing about that. <laughs> okay, Russian history... Asian history and the Middle East were my favorites. Yeah. Well, also, like, Europe doesn't have as much history. Like, while the Arab world was booming during the Islamic period, right. Europe was, I mean, no offense to people who enjoy Vikings and Visigoths and the Roman Empire, but, right. you know, Europe was Vikings, Visigoths, and the Roman Empire. That's not interesting to all of us. I loved 
you know, I still to this day, I love Middle Eastern architecture. Um, you know, like the Iranian world is the invention right. of this, you know, they had the invention of this thing called the squinch, which is how they put round domes on top of square buildings. Right. I, I love, I love, um, calligraphy. I love Persian literature and poetry. You know, there's just all these things were happening while Europe was, you know, asleep in a way, or Europe was busy doing other things. So, you know, sometimes this is the more interesting one. It just, it is what it is. That's how I history could... unfolded. You know, but it's so funny because, oh, I, you know, I watch a lot of documentaries about the Middle East in particular and how they have a very long memory and they don't forget. <laughs> and, and, and which is true. I mean, you can't help but not forget that your countries were colonized by the French, by the British. Mm-hmm. You know, the Americans came in there to some extent. The Germans came in there. The Spaniards came in there. To some. So at the end of the day, it's like, okay, you still want to define who you are as a people. You know, you still have the, I mean, okay, I I never, when I'm dealing with people, period, I, I take out the politics and I take the religion out of it. And yeah. the rest of it, we all get along with. Because I, I look at it like, okay, I'm not, I'm religious, but I'm not that religious. Mm-hmm. So if I don't feel comfortable talking about it, it's because my knowledge base on religion is limited and I just don't feel comfortable. I respect all faiths. I don't care what you believe. Mm-hmm. But at, at the same time, too, I will agree to disagree on a few things. <laughs> but politically, politically, I feel sorry for them because, you know, look at Lebanon. Oh, my God. Like, yeah. I mean, their prime minister just resigned. Oh, <laughs> You know, they're trying to figure out who's going to, you know, they have 20,000 people with coronavirus. You know, they had to shut down the country again. Mm-hmm. You know, they have 70% cases of corona um, in hospitals. They're trying not to make sure it's 100. You know, and this is this small country that's been through yeah. hell and back for almost 100 years or more. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, you know, and it's so... You just feel so sad, you know, because of all those people that lost their lives and homes because of the bombings and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you got Syria. No, I think it's I think it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult region. I will definitely say that as somebody who's studied it and I still work on it. You know, I translate articles about you know Lebanon and Syria and these sorts of places. I. Um, I don't do as much interpretation these days. I do a lot of, like, translation of, you know, news articles and stuff mm-hmm. and um, documents for companies and things like that. But, um, you know, it is. It's hard because there is such a long history. And then, you know, and so I think a lot of people in a lot of these countries, you know, whether it be in Arab states like Lebanon and Syria and Iraq or, you know, like in Iran – people look at the big picture. So like Iranians, for example, I lived in LA for three years and I studied Iranian linguistics and Iranians very much look back to ancient Iran and ancient Persia and pre-Islamic Persia and even Islamic Persia, uh, but pre, you know, revolution and even pre-Shah, like back to, you know, the Qajar dynasty and stuff. And Mm -hmm. they take a lot of pride in this history that they have. But then you look at the present day and it's like, it's just, 
so much is going on and so much of it is very difficult. And a lot of people, I think, want to blame colonialism. And some of it is the fault of colonialism and we're still looking at the ramifications of colonialism. And then some of it's also not colonialism. And it's just, it's really hard to not get lost in it. I think there's so much, you right. know, even in Lebanon, it's, you know, some of this is still, yes, we're looking at ramifications from French colonialism in Lebanon, but some of it is also more modern things like the rise of um, extremist uh, uh, political or religious political parties like, you know, Hezbollah and stuff and the impact that they've had on the country. You know, it's just, it's difficult to not, I always hesitate to use the word pity because I don't want to say, like, I don't pity Lebanon, you know, and I don't, and, and I think that that comes off as very, pedantic or something almost that it's very you know but it's hard not to feel bad you know I have friends who are Lebanese and their families still live in Beirut I have friends who are Syrian the families still live in Aleppo and Damascus and it's hard not to open up the news every morning and read it and go god like you know it's just it is it's difficult um, yeah I will say though the people that I've met you can say merhaba <laughs> and or, you know, shukran or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they, people will go crazy. Like, I've never seen so much kindness. Arabs are some of the most appreciated people I've ever seen about speaking any amount of Arabic. They really, really are, if I can generalize to that extent. Um, anywhere in the Middle East, I think, because it is very much understudied by Westerners, or at least its languages are. Right. Um, you know, I'm speaking Persian with Iranians, speaking Arabic. Armenian with Armenians, uh, you know, I've always gotten positive, generally sort of positive responses. Um, mm-hmm. I've had some pushback from Iranians because I don't speak Iranian accent. I speak with an Afghan accent traditionally. Um, and so I get pushback for that. But otherwise, you know, everybody that I've ever spoken with from the region is very appreciative for the fact that, that, that I study these languages and Arabs very much so. And that I get the added benefit of a lot of times when Arabs meet Westerners who speak Arabic, they, they meet people who speak standard Arabic, and it sounds very weird because nobody speaks naturally that way. And right. so the fact that I speak colloquial dialects and I can do different dialects and understand different dialects, I get even more positive feedback. But right. I will say, in general, I've never gotten so much positive feedback about studying a language as I have from Arabic speakers. It really, they really are some of the most hospitable um, to 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 learners of Arabic language or to those who want to experience you know Arab culture and whatnot. I mean, I'm I'm gone to the point where now I it'll be like a year come next month and I've been studying it off and on. But I actually went as far as to join like Lebanese um, language group on Facebook and two Lebanese cooking groups. One's for vegetarians and one's for not. Mm-hmm. And that's um, the Lebanese cooking group, I think. We might be yeah. in the same <laughs> and and I well, if you saw my tabouli, evidently which one, the one where I used all the freaking daggone um, what was it? I forgot. Oh, it's parsley? a green. It's a green. Parsley. No, oh, not oh, parsley. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, vulgar. Sure. Yeah. Well, I yeah. used too much of it, and let me tell you, oh. like thirteen hundred people looked at like that. I'm like. <laughs> Wow, you know, I messed up on this, and people are like, "Well, you still can eat it." Oh yeah. <laughs> well, see, I mean, I, it, I, it's so good. The first time I ever made tabbouleh, I did not put in enough parsley, and people were like, "That's not enough parsley." 
but it's probably still good. Go ahead and eat it. Like, it's great that you tried. Yeah, uh, and, like, I didn't have parsley, so I used kale instead. Okay. And, um, but see, I'm not the greatest at cutting up tomatoes, like, very small. So yeah. I was trying to cut them up as much as I could. And, like, people were like, they were like, well, the fact that she is trying, she told you she couldn't see very well. The fact that she's actually doing this says something right there. And you should be happy. Exactly. But they love my hummus, and I've made hummus, and I've made Lebanese ninth dessert, and I've made um, hashua, and um, what else? Uh, um, let's see, uh, majetara. Um, uh, I was just yeah. telling my fiance yesterday how much I was craving majetara. It's been so long since I've had any. Oh, it's so easy to make. Oh, it's so easy. Like, I think of it as, like, when I was a kid, growing up, whenever I had a stomach ache, my grandmother or my mom would just make, like, pasta with, like, butter and some garlic. Like, it was right. this sort of gentle thing that you put on your stomach. Right. And the, to me, that's what majadara is. It's, like, just rice and lentils and a little bit of fried. I, it's just so... Right. Uh, it's it's, yeah. it's kind of like home food. It's just, oh, it's nice. Yeah, because I, I, I taught myself how to... I teach myself how to cook a lot of Lebanese food, and I, I actually went towards a Mediterranean... Middle Eastern diet, which actually helped me lose weight. Mm. And and um, but I don't eat I don't eat lamb, so. Oh, I love lamb. Oh, it's so good. But I would go to Aladdin's here in Akron and just go crazy. Like I made I made chicken shawarma from scratch, which oh. was really good. And I the only thing that the only pet peeve I have is that you have to have all the freaking daggone spices. I have oh, some yeah, there's a lot of spices. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I have sumac, and I have, you know, I mean, of course, it, the, the main staples most people do have, like coriander yeah. and allspice and, mm-hmm. um, you know, cumin, cumin and, and, and yeah. paprika, black pepper, um, salt. Yeah. But sumac um, isn't as common. A lot of people right. don't keep sumac. Yeah, I always keep a bag of zaza in my house. That's always in the pantry. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there's other things that I know I don't have, but I mm-hmm. mean, like, oh, I do have ca- cardamom. Mm-hmm. I do have some saffron, but saffron is very expensive. Oh my god. Oh yeah. Yeah, saffron's totally expensive. I don't do a lot with saffron rice just because, um, it's just, you know, there's saffron's not cheap. On the bright side, saffron's not as big in Arab food. It's bigger in Iranian food, but I just oh, I, okay. I don't even try to do saffron rice because, you know, like my little container that has, you know, maybe 30 strands in it costs me like 20 bucks or something. Uh, I got saffron. one. I actually got a box of saffron and it was like $5. What? Yeah, it was that a little box. <laughs> I'm like, what the? But, you know, it's funny because, um, I I I have a friend. Um, have you heard of the the Arab lady, um, Blanche Shaheen from Blanche um, from Feast in the Middle East? No, I have not heard of her. Oh, I mean, she's awesome. her last name is definitely Levantine. Where is she yeah. Lebanese? Yeah. Um, she's from Palestine. Well, her family is from her. Her mom, Vera, is from Palestine. So they're Palestinian. Okay. Yet. Okay. Yeah, Shaheen can be Palestinian or Syrian or sometimes Lebanese too. Yeah, so she okay. 
she grew up in the U.S. and of course Arabic was her first language and, and then she learned Spanish and in English in school and she went and did journalism and was a famous journalist and we became friends because I found her on um YouTube. She has a YouTube channel called Feast in the Middle East, so you might want to check that out. Mm-hmm. And she has a cookbook too, which I bought. And it's all her all her recipes, like from her family and everything, and and, and different other recipes. Like I've made a lot of her stuff, mm-hmm. and and um, I I learned how to make um what is it the um Lebanese rice pudding. The one where okay. you have the where you have the pistachios on top. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. I don't do a lot of desserts, so I, I'm right. missing on sometimes what they're called. But yeah, yeah. So, yes. the halib, so I guess. yeah, and I've made um, halib too. Okay. Yeah. Which it was that was interesting to make. And the only the only drawback was I put too much cinnamon. Oh my god. Yeah, that would be hard. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, but I mean that was my big thing into Lebanon. And wanting to know more about Lebanon and and Lebanese people and, and people just in general, but I wanted yeah. to learn how to cook a lot of the foods from there. So I food culture is a great way to get into a language. Yeah, and um, like I'll I'll listen to like um, have you heard of Hayfawit? Of who? Hayfawit. Oh, Haifa Wahbi. Yeah. Yeah, Haifa Wahbi. She is. Beloved and hated at the same time. <laughs> I have all her. I have all her music. I love her. Uh, there's so much better music than Haifa. I mean, don't get me wrong. Haifa Wahbi is a classic, but there's better music out there. I'll have to send you some more. Okay. Haifa's 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 good, um, but there's there's definitely some better music out there. It depends on what you like, though. But Haifa's Haifa's a classic. Yeah. Well, I mean, I found her, so that, I mean, it was easy for me to to. I like the way she sounds. Yeah, she does have a nice voice. It's not bad. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, that was like I'm. I'm talking about her right now, and I'm like her music is playing in my head in Arabic. <laughs> so I'm I usually I usually listen to her when I'm taking a shower. Or I'm cleaning my house. Yeah. So, but I also listen to like Al Jazeera Arabic and BBC Arabic and um. You know, for the news, and uh, there's one, the Lebanese um, political podcast I listen to. That's in English, but they tell about they tell about what's going on in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And um, but yeah. Oh, have you watched El Heba? I watched a few episodes. I could not get into it. I'm sorry. I just what? so I'm not great with Arab serials. Because I know people, so the whole concept of like Sanselat culture in the Arab world is a big thing. I've watched a couple. Um, I watched a lot of Grand Hotel, which is an Egyptian one. I watched some of of, uh, of Hebe. Um, it's just, I gotta watch season two. I finished I, the whole season one. Oh my! I had English subtitles yeah. because my Arabic's not that strong. But I fell in love with the freaking daggone characters in the. And I was like, yeah. okay, I gotta watch season two. And then I actually joined a group for people really? who like El Heba on Facebook. And I'm like, yeah. oh my god, this is like so freaking awesome. I like, 
and then I found they this just one. feel like soap operas to me, so I have a hard time getting into them. But it took me four days I'm to clear. watch thirty episodes. Oh, oh good lord, that is a lot in four days. That well, is the definition of bitching, Chanel. Well, you know, it's funny too because I do the same thing. Like I did the same thing with this one show that was from can't uh, from um, Hong Kong. It's called Three Women in a Bed, and it's about these three girls that graduated college, and one gets married. One was supposed to get married, but they broke up. The other two were like, you know, they had a long distance relationship, and she became a singer. The other one was a socialite, spoiled. But her father was like dying of like stomach cancer or something like that, and they she had her they had their own farm or whatever, and she had to figure out how to help with the family business. I mean, this is how clueless she was. I mean, she was selling her stuff on eBay, or trying to sell her stuff <laughs> on eBay, and was buying more of her stuff than you know, she owed more people money than she made, and then she had to you know she wound up working for this one guy named Mister Z and. Come to find out he really liked her. She became a part of his marketing department and and was able to figure out how to, like, save her family's farm from getting repossessed and all this. And then the one chick found out that, that had a long-distance relationship that the guy was cheat, had cheated on her for five months. And, and they were trying to repatch their relationship. And then the one chick that was married had found out the guy that she married was dating somebody else while he was married to her. And uh, she left him and got back with the guy originally that they that she had broken up with to marry the guy that cheated on her. So, it, I mean, <laughs> yes. So I I watched that, and I it was it was like maybe 13 episodes. It was like one season long. And I to me, it, between people from Hong Kong, people from Thailand, people from Japan, all in that Asia group, they're either sacrificing something for some family member, some family member's dying, you know, they're having to give up something for the greater good of the family. So it's like that's what I see in connection with with most of the movies and dramas and stuff that they have out to watch. And yeah. I'm like, oh, this is so depressing. <laughs> but, I mean, the story was good, but, you know, and everybody's like, well, how can you, how can you just sit there and just learn a language just for that? I was like, well, I kind of make it a part of my life. So yeah. I'll learn how to cook foods from different countries. I'll go and order food, um, either over the phone or, um, in person at a restaurant. I was like, you know, yeah. I'll go to a store and I'll, I'll interact and buy something out of the store, you know, so I'm using it, you know, like I would English. Now, I might not yeah. be fluent in it, but, you know, I'm working my way towards, you know, a nice, comfortable point where it becomes, you know, organic pretty much. Yeah. For me. And well, I think that's a good goal to have. Yeah, because a lot of people, their idea of a goal is, I need to be fluent. Well, wait a minute. Do you want to teach economics and the language at a university? Then I can see that. You'll be spending a couple years. Don't think this is happening in one. It's going to happen in a couple. You know, and it depends on how much time you put into it and, you know, how how determined you are to 
get to that point. But don't assume that it's going to happen in three months or six months. Well, I think that's where we get into that question of, like, how do we even define fluency? Right. Because, because you know, I think we... Yeah, exactly. Well, but, like, what do we call fluency? You know, I I use the word fluent for languages like Spanish, French, and Arabic, where I feel very comfortable in just about any situation. I can live in country. Uh, you know, I can manipulate the language to however I need, even if I don't know a word. Right. Um, if you can substitute it, you know time, you're fluent. Like, exactly. But at the same time, it's like, I, I know people who would say that, like, I'm fluent in a language like... Portuguese, where my Portuguese, I find it to be rough sometimes because mm-hmm. I mess up words or I have to think before I form a sentence. But, like, mm-hmm. I could go on a trip to Brazil and function in Portuguese and, and not really have a big, big issue. Um, right. Or, like, my, you know, my Persian is at a similar level. And so I think how we define fluency, you know, varies a lot. But this is where, you know, having some sort of standard is hard. Um, personally, like when I hear the word fluent, I, I hold myself to a higher standard, but like, you know, I think what you said about, do you have a certain amount of ease in that language? Even if that ease is in a specific situation, there is still ease there. So, okay, right. maybe, maybe, you know, I can't discuss politics in Russian, but I feel very comfortable. Like if somebody's like, Hey, what did you do this weekend? I can, I can get through most of that in Russian. Right. You know, that I think is a type of fluency. Personally, right. I don't think the word fluent about my Russian, but that is a certain type of fluency. And that's where I understand, I used to be very anti, like, these books that say, you know, fluent in a certain period of time. I used to, you know, like, people would be like, well, what about, you know, Benny and, and fluent in three months? And I used to be very, like, I, I would seize up against this word fluent. But over the years, as I've watched what Benny does, and I've and I've interacted with him some online, like, I think what Benny's talking about with fluency is not like C2 fluency. He's talking about, can you go to country? Can you do some traveling? Can you feel comfortable and not anxious all the time trying to use this language? And I do think that with a certain amount of time and and effort, that can be done in three to four months. That's fine. Um, You're not going to be native speaker fluent in three months. Nobody is, no matter how good they are. But you can get to a very, you know, I've done intensive summer programs, and in a matter of eight to 12 weeks, I am very comfortable enough that, you know, by that standard of fluency, yes, I could call myself fluent in that language. I right. think it just depends about what is the goal, really. Right. And I, I guess, you know, because I haven't interviewed him yet, um, it's kind of hard to um, get a hold of him sometimes. I was he's, following he's very busy. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I, I do have to say, I did follow him in the beginning when I first started out in the polyglot community five years ago. But then yeah. once I started developing my own way of doing things, I stopped following a lot of people. Like, literally, yeah, I just yeah. – because I've come to understand that if you focus so much on someone else's method, you're not going to be able to create your own method on how yeah. you're doing it. And you're just wasting time watching somebody else, you know. And I've seen that a lot, and but I've also seen where – you have these people where, okay, I've taught this for three years or I've done this for this many years. And they're banging themselves up against the wall mentally because they didn't get this grammar point right. Well, in reality, when you're talking to someone, they don't care. Yeah. They only want to know what do you need from them. 
I think this happens a lot in our community in general. Like even me personally, and I've been, I mean, I've been online learning languages since I was in middle school probably, and I've been mm-hmm. actively contributing to the online community via like Tumblr and YouTube and things since 2012. Right. And uh, and and I still to this day sometimes I struggle with it. Sometimes it's a linguistic thing where it's like you know. Me, personally, I've never wanted to be somebody like Benny, for example, and he's had great success, and so a lot of us do look up to him, but I don't see myself as somebody who's trying to share a method, and and that's bothered me over the years because I felt like I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing for the language community, and then in when I wasn't online, I was pursuing a master's degree and then a PhD, and I wanted to be a professor. That takes a lot of time out of your life, and so I wasn't putting in the time online. And I've had to sort of come to peace with – I think it's hard because I don't think there's a problem following others who are using different methods. Like, you know, I follow Benny. I follow Ollie Richards. I follow Alex. I, you know, follow uh, Richard Simcott, you know, and, and Alex and Richard and I have talked privately. Uh, and I might not agree with everything else that all the other online polyglots are doing, even the big famous ones, even other, you know, smaller ones who are at my level – um, of sort of followership or fame, if we can even call it that. But I think my support for them and their support for me is still important. But I, I will also say it's hard sometimes to not get caught up in that, like, you know, especially like playing sort of the Instagram game where I love what I do and I've made a career out of it outside of Instagram. And mm-hmm. sometimes I really want to see like, you know, the Instagram, the podcasting, because my podcast is going to launch in a couple weeks, and, like, I used to do some YouTubing and stuff. Mm-hmm. All of that, I'd love to see that grow more and be able to make that a viable career that brings me income. Right. But I also know that mm-hmm. I don't know if that's for me, you know? Like, I'm not trying to teach people a way to learn a language. I'm just so in love with the region that I work on and its languages, and I want to share that with other people. But it's hard to make money off of how do I just share my passion with somebody else? You, you know, know what? That's difficult. I <laughs> have to say this. I, I'm going to say this. You should do it anyway. Oh, no, I'm because, still totally because, doing it. It's just it's really not about the money aspect. You're going to have to get, when it comes down to podcasting, I've been doing this for 29 months. As a matter of fact, this is my 185th episode. Wow. And I'm consistent. I've never taken a vacation. You know, I really enjoy it. And like uh-huh. you, like I probably have made $71 in like a year and a half. Wow. So $71 isn't a lot, but you I don't really, I'm not looking at it like that. You see what I'm saying? I'm looking yeah. at, is my message coming across to people? Do people like what it is that I'm saying? Now, I don't have a degree in linguistics. No, I have a degree in theater. And I have a degree in film. And I have a TEFL certification. But, you know, I mean, I'm in 111 countries. And I, I'm this close to being at 16K listeners. And, mm-hmm. You know, on is like 40 to 50 downloads every, you know, couple days. And, you know, I mean, I just was on International Podcast Day as a, a guest um, talking about 
podcasting from language learning and Aspen the language nerd was on there and Kirsten uh, mm-hmm. Cable of the Fluent Show and I've interviewed cool. both of them and they're lovely people but you know I, I'm going to be honest yes can it be somewhat daunting intimidating because these people have more experience than you do they've been around and they've taught you know like online and you know they have all this other stuff going on and i just have my podcast show you know i might have my little group that i have um you know to help people with languages on facebook and i have my little instagram and my little twitter but i'm you know i'm saying i'm not doing it to become buku rich or like the most famous person on the face of the planet and as far as fame is concerned yes you can write books you can be on the New York Times bestseller list and all that. But, dude, if nobody is rummaging through your garbage and they don't have a drone <laughs> in your backyard, you're only... Because you really haven't made it. <laughs> you, you really... You're not... You, you have some notoriety. Yeah. That's well, no, it. I think, I, I think that's the point. I think that's the thing that that me, for example, I've struggled with is because I've been around for so long... Right. I have often worried, like, oh, I did something wrong because I haven't gained that fame or that sort of notoriety. But I've had to sort of come to terms with, I think all of us are different, and we all contribute something differently. Some people contribute books. Some people contribute podcasts. Some people contribute, you know, nervous breakdown rants on Instagram, like I do, because <laughs> I do that a lot. But... You know, I think I think that's the thing. I think that's what I was getting at. Maybe I didn't word it right. Is I think a lot of times in our community, we often get caught up with with comparing ourselves to each other, and it's not about comparison. It's about right, right. it's about each of us doing our own thing, pursuing the languages that we love, sharing it however we choose and however we love, and just letting that be enough. And over the right, past right. maybe three years, I've come to terms with that, and I've let that be enough in my life. Um, but I know for a while it used to bother me a lot. Um, well, I, I I know this much. I talk about the dark and seedy side of the polyglot community because a lot of people fail to realize, oh, well, people are so nice. Well. Not always. Not always. <laughs> and not you everyone. Know, there, are, gotta, there are some people in our community. Yeah, that, that, are, that can be very seedy and very conceited and very stuck up and I was like, well, that's them. That's not me, you know. But, I mean, I have dealt with a lot of bullying. You know, people assuming that I have a vision problem that I don't know what I'm talking about. Or I do have a master's degree. RP. I was like, dude, you've heard of Stephen Crashing. I interviewed him last year. That man doesn't give too many interviews. You guys. That's true. He really doesn't. Right. Myself. Steve Kaufman and Ollie Richards, I kid you not, have probably the only three people that I know of that have had the pleasure of interviewing them in. So you have to be able to stick out like a sore thumb in order to be noticed (laughs) by this man. I mean, I loved it because I love books and, you know, genealogy and history and all that and travel and food. And so for me, it was great to talk to someone like and just have a conversation. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And well, and I think somebody like Stephen Krashen is also nice because I think you're right. Our community isn't about the degrees that you have, but I also think that like for somebody like me who 
I am professionally a linguist. I have degrees in this. Right. And it's nice to see other people, too, because there are times like Richard and I have talked about the conference. And Richard has asked me personally, like, you know, would you come and give talks? And I've always been busy or I was busy with grad school. And then this year, Corona happened and I just got caught up with work and stuff. And so I didn't pre- I didn't I didn't prepare anything to submit as a paper. But I said to Richard, you know, my concern is like, I want to give a talk about like weird syntactic things about Semitic languages and, and Arabic. And sometimes I feel like our community doesn't care about weird detailed linguistics like that. And I remember he said to me very like explicitly, he's like, Aaron, people like you are needed here too. And I think that's like the thing about people like Stephen Krashen as well. You don't have to have a degree to do what we do in our community or you don't have to be a professional linguist and and that's very much clear but then i think there's also those of us who are professional linguists and sometimes i feel like you know do people care about that either because i i think people sometimes want to see more you know what are my top 10 words in arabic that i like as opposed to how i feel about this weird morphosyntactic feature of non-concat native grammar and the development of arabic dialects you know like weird nitty-gritty things that I, you know, enjoy reading about and writing about and speaking on. Um, you know, sometimes I worry that people don't care about that, but that's part of it. It's it's the diversity that all of us bring to our experiences in our community. Right. Well, you know, and it's funny you say that because when you did your speech for Women in Language, like, I knew nothing about that. Like, that was so educational to me. And, you know, I was like, he's you want just a got, like a sore thumb. I didn't know much about it. I, I've, I've lived the experience of dealing with gender in language because right. of being a queer person. Right. But it's not what I do professionally. And so when I decided to give that talk, I talked about it a lot with Marissa, whose her Instagram is Bossy Dinkle Marissa, and she and I are good friends. And I talked about it with Kirsten. And I told both of them, like, I think this is a topic that is needed. Just I think it needs to be a conversation. And I think it's something that, that the audience of women in language will enjoy. But I'm also nervous because it is not my specialty. And I am an academic is what I was for years. And you didn't come into a room and speak on a topic unless you were an expert on that topic. Right. And so I was so nervous. And I did so much research leading up to it. And I was concerned about, you know, is, is too much of this going to be anecdote? Because I've done that when I've taught. I've When I taught my Arabic my intro to modern Arab culture class when I was a professor, we mm-hmm. did a week talking about queer folk in the Middle East or in the Arab world. And we read articles and I had them read excerpts of books. And then on one of the days I just lectured and I talked about my own personal experience. And then I combined some of that with general queer theory, but a lot of it was anecdotal. And I once had a student on a review, like at the end of the semester, criticized that because they were like, you know, this is a course. Why is she giving anecdotes? And, but I think also personal experience is important. But yeah, that's, it's an interesting topic that a lot of people don't know about, but it's also an understudied topic. And even me personally, I hadn't studied, excuse me, a lot of it until I was preparing. I just knew right. that being a queer person, how did I deal with this in the languages that I speak? And how have I seen friends in our community deal with this? And I felt like, okay, well, that's something that needs to be talked about. Or, you know, I was just curious to know, um, now, what, given the fact that you've lived in the Middle East and you've worked in the Middle East, 
what are the perceptions of someone that might be a part of the LGBT space, the queer space, the binary space? I mean, because, you know, the, religion is a big part, a big component of, of their way of life. And so I'm just curious how, how is, I mean, because there are some countries where people in that space. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's it's difficult. I I I always hesitate to paint with large strokes, just because you know I think the 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 stereotype is there that this is an unsafe space for queer people. However, by not addressing that, I I feel like that it also downplays it. A lot of the Arab world and a lot of the Middle East, as we think of it, and sort of those boundaries, mm-hmm. is unsafe for queer people. Um, now, not every country, not every city is going to, you know, come with torches down the street to find the gay guy and, and you know, burn him at the stake. Like, it's not that kind of unsafe. Right. Are there are there countries in the region that still have the death penalty for homosexual acts? Yes. Are there countries in the region where, even if it is not criminalized, are queer people, be it trans folk like myself or homosexuals or any other form, of, you know, anybody who would be part of the LGBTQIA mm-hmm. plus the whole community, um, would they be persecuted by their peers or by their neighbors? Yes. And so I certainly don't want to downplay that and act like it's all happy and fun. At the same time, I think people often forget that there are gay bars in Jordan. There are gay bars in Lebanon. You know, there is a community. Um, and I often try to push back at, at, at the fear, sort of almost fear-mongering about it, because I don't know how many times I've had people on Facebook be like, well, I don't want to study Arabic because of the way they feel about gay guys. Or I don't want to study Russian because of the way Russians have treated homosexuals. And I'm like, and I understand that fear, but I also feel like, just because we might have that fear as outsiders doesn't mean that there aren't queer folk in these countries. And when we as queer folk learn these languages and get to interact with queer folk in the countries, we get to see another part of that country's culture. We Mm -hmm. get to see what their underground queer culture looks like, or Mm -hmm. we get to even help them. There are groups that help bring queer people out of the Middle East, people who are in dangerous situations. I have friends who work for these groups. I've helped do some translating here and there with these groups that have brought like trans women out of Jordan and out of Syria. And I think when I'm in Egypt, um, you know, so, and I have a friend who taught me Arabic, who was a gay guy and he now lives in the U S and he talked about though his life was never threatened that he never fully felt safe, you know? And so it, it is a difficult topic. There is a lot of, even for people who aren't very religious in terms of their practice, there is still very much a cultural bias against queer folk in a lot of the region. Um, but I think some of that's also changing. Uh, again, a lot of it comes down to where exactly you are, even within a city. You know, there are parts of Jordan or parts of Amman, the capital city, where, you know, you might not want to go. But, like, if you go to the downtown areas, there's a gay bar. There are bars where I know gay guys go to. Uh, you know, there are queer people there and they hang out together and you can feel safe in that smaller community. Uh, the same thing happens, I know, in the Gulf. I haven't been personally, but I have queer friends who live in different Gulf states, like in the UAE. And there are places in Dubai that they feel safe. 
and there is a community and and so this all does happen it's mm-hmm. just often it's not mainstream it's underground very much to very much similar to sort of the way queer culture was here maybe back in the 60s and 70s right um, you know, we might not have had a death penalty still back then, and Saudi Arabia no, still does have a penalty for it, as does Iran. But, right. you know, these there there is queer culture and queer spaces in the Middle East, and right. and I think it's good for us to know about that and to be aware of it and to try to interact with it. But I also think that it's hard to ignore the amount of violence and prejudice against queer folk at the same time. But... I don't know. For me, that's always turned it into a challenge in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of bias in the U.S. against learning Arabic or against Arabic speakers, and there's a lot of bias against queer people in the Arab world. And to me, that's always made me want to be more of that link of being, you know, somebody in the U.S. who has learned Arabic to a very high level and gets to be an interpreter and a translator. And when I taught, I taught in South Carolina. I had students who walked into my classroom and their knowledge of the Arab world was terrorism. That's all they knew. Which is and terrible. I felt like, no, it is. It's terrible. And that's what I felt like I wanted to share with them was like, here is here are 20 plus countries that have their own diverse histories and cultures that, you know, Lebanon is nothing like Iraq, that, that there's so much diversity within the Arab world and so much history and linguistic diversity and all of this. And all you know and all your family or your media has fed you is terrorism. And, and that creates this huge cultural and psychological bias against 400 million people throughout the right. world. Like, that's so wrong. But similarly, like, you know, I go into spaces as a professional mm-hmm. and as a trans person and I interact a lot with Arabs. And, you know, I don't out myself very quickly. Only a few people that I work with know. Um, it's not something I, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it, but I don't think everybody needs to be, you know, up in my personal business. Right. But I also feel at the same time that I have to have a voice as a queer person and right. be able to be like, look, I still work in this community. I interact with, you know, native speakers of Arabic every day. I interact with people who are far more culturally conservative than myself. And I've done that for years now. And I feel like it's my maybe not my job, but I feel like it's important for me to show them that, like, you know, you know, that, that there are, I, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to say that, like, there are normal trans folk, because it's not about normalization, it's not about being normal or different, but I want to show them that, like, any preconceived ideas that they might have are not true. Right. Um, I, I feel like it's my job to be an ambassador and sort of to be on both sides of it, to be like, you know, let me share what I know about the Arab world with Americans and let me share what I know about the queer world with, I mean, anybody, even other Americans. I grew up, my family is very religious. They're not great about the queer stuff. And I feel like it's my job to, to show them and explain to them and teach them about right. my culture and my world. Um, so, you know, that's really just, you know, it's, it's funny. You it's say a that. hard topic. But. You know, it's funny you say that because like, my aunt, she was like, you learn these languages. And I was like, yes, I learned bits and pieces of certain languages. You know, I'm not fluent in every single one. Um, however, I might speak three languages fluently and I might be passively knowledgeable in three other languages to a high level. You know, if I can listen to uh, books and be able to get off, you know, like listen to the news in these languages and 
and understand what's going on. Evidently, I'm at a pretty high level without speaking it. Yet, yet I, for the rest of them that I've dabbled in, I'm at a basic, a very basic beginner level. So she assumes you're supposed to get paid for all this. And I said, well, not everything's about money. Um, yeah. You know, because I enjoy communicating with people. So even if it's at the bare minimum basic level, it, that's better than nothing. So um, I'm just curious, like, if, um, when we touched on the, the dialect issue of, of learning the, you know, like, if you learn MSA first and then learn a dialect after the fact or vice versa, depending on what you want to do with it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know that, like, for instance, I use the Mango app quite a bit. And, of course, mm-hmm. they have MSA, they have Levantine, they have Iraqi, and they have um, Egyptian. Now, their Egyptian Arabic is only 10 chapters long. So, basically, you know, that's basically the basics. You know, according to Mango, there are 10 chapters, which is a whole bunch of lessons, almost 100 lessons or something like that. Is there an equivalent of, like, A1 on the, yeah. you know, the, the European scale? So um, I said, okay, that's understandable. You you have a foundation. You can go over to Egypt and you can, you know, order some food and, you know, ask for directions and how much this costs and ask for help. Your basic things you would need to know. Uh-huh. And then a couple other things on the side. Yet, for like the MSA, the Levantine Arabic, and the Iraqi Arabic, they go into more detail. Mm-hmm. And like, I guess more detail to the point where if you were going to go over there for a while. So, um, I'm just curious, like, if you were to have to give some advice to somebody about that whole you know, should you learn it all just because you don't know who you're going to come in contact with, whether they're from Iraq, whether they're from Lebanon or Egypt, or whether they're, you know, you're just doing modern standard. I mean, because I've talked to people where I just learned modern standard and I was still understood everywhere. Or I I learned Sudanese because I went to Sudan. Uh-huh. And I said, well, I've never seen Sunnis yet, you know, as far mm-hmm. as audio is concerned. I've seen the other four. And I, I, yeah. I, that was my my own query because I'm like, well, I, I know someone that's from Iraq, but I've spoken some basic and they still understood what I was saying. And it was Egyptian. Yeah. So I didn't know what I mean, when you were learning, did you just focus on the different dialects and really didn't care or you know did it you know yeah so personally I knew there was a region that I wanted to focus on Mm -hmm. Uh, but I first started studying Arabic I really wanted to study Iraq Uh, I started studying Arabic in 2009 the Iraq war had already begun Uh, right so I knew I was never going to get to go to Iraq at least not for a very long time and so I oh, sort of no. immediately knew, like, okay, well, that's not going to be an option. So what else do I do? And I, so my general preference in the Arab world historically, you know, and now linguistically, 
was always the Levant and Mesopotamia. So Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, and Iraq. Mm-hmm. Since I couldn't do Iraq, I was, you know, read a little bit more, and I really loved all of the history that was in Syria. Mm-hmm. And then, so I was like, okay, well, I'll study Syrian dialect. And this was in addition to MSA, and I'll get to that in a second, because okay. um, I'll tell you my personal experience, and then I'll tell you my, my professional recommendation. Um, okay. So I was like, okay, I'll study Syrian. And that was the plan. Um, my Arabic professors were Jordanian and Palestinian, and it's close enough to Syrian dialect that it works. Um, and then the protests and then the series of a war began in 2011, and I was supposed to start studying Arabic in 2012. And so, or I was supposed to go abroad to study abroad in 2012, and Syria was suddenly off the list. Mm. And all of the wave of protests of the Arab Spring that started, that was, you know, in 2010 and 11, late mm-hmm. December 2010 into early 2011. Right. Um, that, you know, like, so they weren't really letting American students go to Egypt uh, that much. And, uh, you know, Syria was out. Lebanon was kind of out. It was still a little bit dangerous just because they had a, had a recent wave of fighting, I think. I'm trying to remember exactly why Lebanon wasn't an option. Um, I didn't really want to do any of the Gulf states. And so this left me with Jordan or Morocco. I didn't want to do Moroccan dialect. I didn't want to do North African. Like, I'm not against that as a dialect. And the program in Morocco I looked at taught French, and they had courses on Francophone uh, North African authors, which sounded interesting. And and my other degree, I was doing two degrees at the same time, a double Mm -hmm. major in Arabic and in French. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that would have been great for my French. But I really was like... My French is already pretty good. I, I want to study abroad for Arabic and really improve my Arabic. This is a much more difficult language. It needs more of my attention and time. And right. the program, excuse me, the program that I did in Jordan was full immersion. And we signed a language pledge and everything. And so, excuse me, um, I ended up going to Jordan and it worked out. And so that's the dialect I speak. I, I speak a general sort of Jordanian Arabic with maybe a slight Lebanese or Syrian accent to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I've studied Iraqi. I understand Iraqi quite well. I've studied Egyptian. I understand Egyptian quite well. Um, and I've done a little bit with the Gulf and with Morocco. My professional recommendation is: I did a whole series on this in, in Instagram stories once. Um, is generally that I think it's a very personal choice. Um, so, like I said before, if, if if you have Moroccan friends and you want to go to Morocco, by all means, go learn Moroccan. That's great. Um, However, I think a lot of people who are interested in Arabic are either unsure still because they don't have a specific contact with it or they want to get the sort of the most out of it, almost like the biggest bang for their buck of, is there a dialect that I can speak that'll get me to more countries or whatever? Right. Uh, so my general rule is I think, I think MSA as a standard has a foundation, especially if anybody plans on reading, writing, if you're trying to get to like real high level fluency, work with it professionally, you have to know standard. You can't avoid that. Everybody in that situation should learn standard. Um, if you're just trying to do conversational, do a little bit of traveling in a specific country or two, then I would say only do dialect. But for the most part, I say everybody should do both. Because even if you do MSA, you always have to do a dialect because if you want to speak to people you right. can speak MSA to people and people will understand you, but, but it is not common for them to respond in MSA. Right. 
Right. Uh, um, even well-educated Arabs don't usually respond in MSA, or they do, but it's MSA with their local accent. So, like, you'll hear Egyptians be interviewed on news. They're speaking MSA, but they're speaking it with an Egyptian accent. So they say things like Heza and Hezihi instead of Hatha and Hadihi, right. and not the full Egyptian D and Da, but so they're sort of sitting in the middle. Um, right. So you have to at least know some MSA. Um, I think if you're going to try to gain fluency or professional working proficiency or anything like that. In terms of choosing a dialect outside of the general, like, well, you know, do you have friends from a country? Is there a specific country you want to go to or work with or whatever? Um, the, there are, from, from a linguistic standpoint, if we go down to local dialects, like village dialects, there are, I believe the highest number I've ever seen is over 800 possible dialects of Arabic. Oh, wow. However, yeah. And then you could even generally talk about country. And so, but even if we did it by country, that puts us at 20 something. I think there's 21 states in the Arab League, but two of them don't really speak Arabic, kind of. Um, three, no, so two definitely don't speak Arabic. Somali doesn't speak Arabic, really. Um, it's used, like, in schools, or it, it's, like, taught for Quran in schools. And Comoros doesn't speak Arabic. And then. Djibouti does, but I have friends who are, like, Somali friends who are raised in Djibouti, and they mostly speak French. Um, but Djibouti technically does use Arabic. So that leaves us with, what, 19 possible dialects if we went by country. However, generally, we often break them down into larger groups. So there's North African, which is usually Algerian, Tunisian, Moroccan, and Mauritanian. Libyan sort of sits in this weird spot in between Egyptian and um, the rest of North Africa. Egyptian is sort of its own dialect group, and sometimes people lump Sudanese up with it, although Sudanese can, especially rural Sudanese, be quite different from Egyptian. And then we talk about the Gulf states having a general dialect, the Levantine states of Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Palestine having a dialect, and then Iraq having its own dialect. So we generally talk about one, two, three, four, like five to six major dialect groups. Right. However, even among these, some of these have precedence and larger popularity. So, for example, because Egypt, which they often refer to as Imid Dunya, the mother of the world, mm-hmm. was the largest producer of Arabic language media and sort of pop culture, film, music, everything, Egyptian dialect is incredibly widely understood and has had an influence on other dialects. There are features of Palestinian Arabic that come from Egyptian that don't exist in other Levantine dialects. Um, So Egyptian is widely understood, but again, what we're looking at is similar to using MSA. If you learn Egyptian and you speak it and you go and talk to an Iraqi, they're probably going to answer you in Iraqi or in some sort of... um, North Africans often refer to this as Lachabayda, that it's mm-hmm. a white dialect. It's sort of this neutral. It's not standard, I've but it's not my it. local dialect either, um, where it's kind of this neutral middle ground. Of right. General, it's not standard, but it's a lower level than standard, and it's not mm-hmm. too dialectic, be mm-hmm. like specific that other people won't understand. And this is what I speak often with colleagues, because I speak my dialects. I have colleagues who are Iraqi. I have colleagues who are Moroccan. And we all sort of understand each other. But, like, if one of my Iraqi friends or one of my Iraqi colleagues spoke very specific Iraqi dialect to me, I might not understand him. But if he uses general terms like Iraqis, you know, mm-hmm. so, like, the verb to speak, in standard Arabic it's tkallama, in fushab this becomes, or, sorry, in uh, Egyptian this becomes kallam or tkallam. Right. In my dialect we use haka, 
but then in Iraqi, it gets repronounced, and the the ka turns to cha, and so those, in the present tense, they'll say like ehchi or ana ehchi. Um, right. I I understand in Iraqi when they say that. A Moroccan understands in Iraqi when they say that because of exposure. Right. However, if if they use something very locally specific, so for example, um, I think Iraqis use the word qashuk, which is uh, for spoon. Right. Which or it might be Goshuk, I don't remember um, how they pronounce it, but it's actually a Farsi word. It's a word right. from Persian. Um, a Moroccan might not understand that because they're going, "What the hell is that?" I right. know it because I've learned. I know it because I also speak Persian, and right. so we find this sort of middle ground, this lahjabaida, to to speak in of of general features, but not using anything too locally specific. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It's it it really is hard. If if somebody ever wanted to become like fluent or at a very high level, depending on how we wanted to define fluency, but like work with Arabic professionally, eventually what somebody has to do really is they have to learn standard. They have to learn a dialect and speak it, and they have to learn to understand at least one or two other dialects. Like I speak my dialect, but I understand Iraqis. I understand golf for uh, golf Arabic for a certain you know, to a certain extent, and I understand right. Egyptian. Some of this just takes time. It's about exposure. This is why Arabs understand each other. You know, if if an Arab was raised in isolation in a small town in Syria and never saw media, then no, they're not going to understand Egyptian. But because Arabs are often raised on Egyptian media, Syrians understand Egyptian Arabic because they grew up watching Egyptian TV or listening to Egyptian singers or seeing Egyptians interviewed on TV. At the end of the day, it's all about exposure. You might right. get some words because, yes, they are the same language. They have similarities. They have shared vocabulary. But right. the reason Arabs often understand other dialects is through simple exposure. And so it really just takes time. You know, I never took an Egyptian class. I read some, you know, articles and have a couple books about Egyptian, and I've read some things, and I have Egyptian friends, and you just learn right. it over time. And it takes right. a while. I used to think, so the Egyptian word for now is dilwati. Right. And we say Halla or Hassa in Levantine. Halla comes from Halwaqt, meaning this time, and Hassa comes right. from Hassa, meaning this hour. Dilwati right. comes from something like Hada al Waqti, I guess, or right. Del. I don't mm-hmm. know what the first D is, but that E at the end comes from Waqti, which is like this time. That's what right. I've been told. When I hear Dilwati, I hear in my time or something because what tea could also be my time in my dialect it took me Mm -hmm. years to get used to hearing an egyptian say the what tea and know that means now right but i know it it just took me a while to get used to hearing it and that's really all it is is it's just a game of exposure and patience you can study you can learn of course and that speeds up the process right but it really is about exposure over time Um, right but, yeah, it's, I, I think it all depends on your goals. If your goal is to just read literature, then just learn standard Arabic. But right. e- even these days, more and more people are using dialectal terms in their literature. Some people write entire novels in their dialect. This happens a lot. Um, there's a couple authors in Lebanon who write entirely in Lebanese dialect. Um, yeah, because I, I noticed that. There's no like, avoiding it. Like when I was learning Russian, I, I got to a certain point where after a while I just absorbed so much information that I had to find stuff besides Harry Potter to read. Yeah. And and I found the Metro series by Dimitri, whatever his last name is. And uh, that oh, yeah. was, I think I was 
yeah, yeah. And so he had that series in like every single language known to man. So I was able to find it and, you know, and get it and listen to it. And I mean, it was very short and brief, you know, but I, you know, I I found things that I enjoyed, like, uh, I like Andre Zionsis for, um, um, like Elena and uh, Leviathan and Loveless. Um, I've seen all his movies. And so, for me, like, I had to pick stuff that I enjoy watching, you know, and, I mean, you know, you know you're rooted inside the language when you can listen to a three-hour press conference in, 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 in Russian, listen to someone ask a question and tell you what happened as to why they're asking the question for and start crying because you feel so bad for them. Yeah. So, I mean... For me personally, I, I think that was my little stickler for Arabic was I love Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm going to stick with the Levantine Arabic because you can speak more. You can speak it with more in more countries. You know, it's a little bit yeah. more, you know, diverse. Yeah. Um, well, and a lot pro- of people understand it as well. Right, right. You know, I and, never had somebody tell me they didn't understand me unless it was a very, like, specific or I did have a girl once, she's Egyptian, she didn't understand the use of, in Lebanon or in the Levant, we'll say msa'a, um, or sa'an, for, for like cold or like chilly, and msa'a, right. and fusha means chilled, you know, there's a dish in Jordan called msa'a, um, right. and so that's not weird, but we were outside or something, and I was talking about the weather, and I looked at her, and I was like, and she was like, like it's it's very what and I was like M-sa'ah. and she like was so shocked that I would use this word for weather and I honestly questioned myself until I'm like texting Palestinian friends being like please tell me you say M-sa'ah. and they're like yeah we do and then like two years later I saw Arabic with Maha Maha Yaqub she's very nice she has yeah. a YouTube channel called Arabic with Maha on on her on her Instagram story, she made a comment about the weather being so, ah, and I was like, yes, thank God, I'm justified. I watch her. I watch her. Yeah, she's great. I was watching her back when I started Arabic 11 years ago. She's been around for so long now, and now she has her book and everything. She's yeah, she's wonderful. She's a complete sweetheart. But yeah, you know, there are some words and some things that people might not understand cross dialectically. But right. for the most part, I think the two most widely understood dialects are probably Egyptian and Levantine. And then right. within Levantine, I think Jordanian sounds a little bit more neutral. And so right. that tends to get you a little bit further than, say, Damascene Syrian, Syrian from Damascus, or, like, Lebanese. Um, those tend to be a little bit more different from sort of a pan-Levantine dialect. Right. But in general, you know, you're going to have a better chance using Lebanese than you are using Iraqi or Moroccan or something. Right, because I, I noticed, like, for some reason, I'm this big, huge grammar junkie, so when I learn even the basics of a dialect, I'm comparing all of it. Yeah. You know, all, and I'm like... And, which oh, is great. Right. It's a great approach. Right, and and then I'm like, well, goodness gracious, should I should I learn, learn a couple words in Iraqi just in case someone throws something at me? And, and, yeah, I mean, it doesn't hurt. Yeah, and and I mean for me, it's finding material that's accessible because yeah. otherwise if, that, that could be if hard. it's 
if it's in PDF form. Well, I did find a workaround to reading Arabic, so that's not a that's not so bad. I mean, if someone sent me a book in Arabic, I would be able to read it with my um my device because I downloaded the Braille file for Braille Arabic, and then I I um have the voice for Arabic. Even though it's modern standard, but it's still, you know. It's something. Yeah. Yeah. And so then if I open the book up in iBook, in books, then I can just turn the language to Arabic. And then, you know, because the the table is already downloaded, I just swipe down twice and it starts reading to me in in Arabic. Now, if I didn't have the voice on for Arabic, it would, it wouldn't, it wouldn't pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've I've gotten that as long as it's written in the language. Now, mm-hmm. if if it's you know someone did Google Translate, you know it's not gonna. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. But aside from that, I mean, I found workarounds. I mean, five years ago there was no workaround. So. Yeah. No. So, a lot. Of, a lot has changed over the past five to ten years. Even when I first started studying Arabic. We couldn't type Arabic on a Mac. It was literally impossible. Only PCs could do it. And right. now, you know, we have voice to text. It's fine. Yeah, we have right. keyboards. We have everything. So right. technology certainly helps, and it's been changing. Oh yeah, I just I I it's kind of weird because I I got the Harry Potter Arabic. I got like three of the book three three of the books already. I started at book four because that's when it really got interesting. And um, yeah. So I got them in ebook format off of Pottermore, downloaded them onto my iBook, and then I'm able to now listen to them that way instead of, I mean, I can pay for the audio version of the Arabic, but I'm not paying all that money. Yeah. When I can just have, I, I, well, I mean, the first book is 30 bucks, but why should I do that for if I have the ebook and I can just have it read to me in Arabic? Exactly. I mean, it's less than $10. I mean, but, you know, for some people, you know, like I, I tell people all the time when I do my show, you know, I let people know, well, this isn't accessible. Like, I can't read it. You know, I couldn't have this read to me because it's not, you know, if it's all in PDF format, I can't access that. It's not going to be compatible with my, my touch the screen, you know, a voiceover or if you've got a PC, JAWS for Windows or NVDA. And if it's mm-hmm. not you know, it's it's going to be difficult for people that, you know, who have low vision to access it or people who just braille readers to access it. Now, I will say the good thing is there's there are blind people all over the world. So braille is there for people to, I mean, because I, I do know someone that lives in Saudi Arabia and he's totally blind. Yeah. And he's a part of my language learning group. And um, we, you know, we, I talk about that with him sometimes I ask what's that like living is someone that's blind totally blind not partial in in Saudi Arabia you know because disabilities in a lot of countries in the east are somewhat shunned if it's not westernized and so you know I mean there are people where you would get harmed severely or even die for just using the internet so, yeah, like, I mean, I know someone that lives in Iran. He has no rights whatsoever. 
can't vote, can't go to school, can't get married, can't have a job, all because he's blind. Which yeah. th- that has because you have either no sight, partial sight. That doesn't define who you are. This is, but you know, culturally speaking, people don't understand. You know, they look at it yeah. from a religious standpoint or, or however they were brought up. And I was like, well, that's not, man, I know people that are judges, lawyers, doctors, teachers, mm-hmm. you know, engineers, linguists, whatever, you know, the sky's the limit. You know, as long as you have the technology and the training, the education, yeah. you can do whatever you want. You know, exactly. and so, you know, I tell people all the time, I want to, um, you know, I talk about my own journey of learning languages and how difficult it is sometimes to find things, you know, and I've gotten ignorant comments. Well, mm-hmm. they didn't make this app for people that were blind originally in there. And I was like, if you have something, that's you know, have. <laughs> right, it should be for everybody, not just one group of people. Yeah. And I said, like, I do know what it's like, remember what it's like to read and write print. Cause I wrote reading. I had used print for a lot of my life. So, and I still do to some extent, but not as much. So, mm-hmm. so for me, it's a little bit different as opposed to somebody that can't see it all and that's never learned how to write their name or they yeah. didn't know how to, use, they don't know their social security number or which you should, um, you know, or they don't know how to use the <clears throat> telephone because no one taught them how. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, uh, for me, you know, this whole platform is to really educate people, you know, on how you can learn something using, you know, minimum resources to, mm-hmm. to get the job done. Whether it's an app, even though I always say, make sure you use more than one resource, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, because it's going to get dull and boring after a while. And I said, you know, I use TV, I use movies, I use the news a lot of the time. And I actually have to say, I enjoy watching the news in other countries because it shows you what they, what, how they perceive our country. Yeah. And, and we might find out more information from somewhere overseas than our own country. So I, I mean, I learned more about my political system just listening to Russian TV. Four years ago. So, <laughs> you, you know, it, and, I mean, and that says something right there, you know, how much you can evolve with learning a language, you know, based off of your own hobbies, your own interests. Because someone says, well, do you have any other hobbies other than language learning? I was like, of course I do. I interject all my, my, uh, I include all of my, my hobbies into my language process yeah. because it makes it more fun. You know, you're not just, I'm not a textbook person. I don't, you don't speak like a textbook, you know, but everybody wants to go to a textbook or everybody wants to go to a grammar book. And I said, no, you want to learn through osmosis. You want to learn through context, you know, not, I need to know what a power drill is in Russian or Arabic. Well, (laughs) are you going to use that like right now? No. You know, so for me, you know, and for a lot of other people, uh, talking about you know the Middle East and their languages and you know the different dialects I mean I don't see anybody doing that and for me that's like I get really happy 
Cause yeah, I, yeah, mean, I do feel like it's not something that I get to see very often. Right. And, yeah. and you don't because most of them are, let's do all the European languages. Or let's mm-hmm. do this family. Or I speak five languages. And then when I sit there and I say, okay, so is it German, Spanish, Italian, French, and Portuguese? It's like, how did you know? Yeah. I took a really good guess. That wasn't hard. <laughs> okay. I mean, I have it's, friends who have focused on Romance languages and Western European languages. And I don't think that's a bad thing, like, to each their own. Right. Um, you know, I speak multiple Romance languages. But I do think that the, that that Western Asia, and, like, I do Central Asia as well. Central Asia is so understudied. You know, you tell somebody. I remember when I studied Tajik, which is just a dialect of Persian. But I studied Tajik, right. and I literally, I had a friend look at me and go, where's Tajikistan? And I told them, and they were like, you're making that up. Like, that's not a real place. I'm like, no, Tajikistan is real. Definitely real. They definitely have their own language. Um, their right. Own alphabet. <laughs> that <laughs> well, they that use is so awesome, though. Really. But, 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 yeah, I don't think there's enough of us out there who, you know, even, like, online. Um, there are, like, I get people who do Arabic. I, you know, get people who do some Hebrew. And every now and then you get Persian. I see a fair amount of native speakers teaching their language. So there are a fair amount of, like, Instagram accounts of Arabs who are teaching their dialect of Arabic, but I do not see a lot of people who do Central Asia or people like me who do sort of that whole larger region of Central and Western Asia. Right. Um, um, you know, it, it tends to be very focused, like you just do Arabic or you just do Persian, but right. um, to have somebody, if I can pat myself on the back for a second, but like to be somebody who my platform is... I do this whole region, it's history, how its languages have interacted over millennia at this point, because I've gone all the way back to Old Persian and Classical Armenian. I mean, Old Persian is from 500 BCE, Classical Armenian. Right. Uh, first gets attested in, what's that, maybe the 5th century CE, uh, to present-day dialects of Arabic and dialects of Persian, um, and how these languages have come into contact over time as different empires have arisen and fallen. You know, right. that sort of breadth and that sort of depth at the same time is not something I get to see very often. And so I love when I meet other people who are like, yes, please, let's talk more about dialects of Arabic. Or let's talk more about, you know, um, how Southern Central Asian languages like Turkmen and Uzbek have way more Arabic loanwords than Northern Central Asian languages like Kazakh and Kyrgyz or, you know, these sorts of weird things that I, I you're right, they're not, they're not the mainstream. And you don't see right. them very often. So when I see others doing it as well, I'm like, yes, yes, let's well, please talk. You know, it's funny because I want to, I really want, and, and this is the thing, like, you know, people talk about, well, I want to be, I, I want to include more people from, you know, of color. And I said, okay, so does people in the Arab world count too? You know, <sighs> because honestly, oh, they're over, they're overlooked. Yeah. You you hear about the Asians, you hear about certain people in Africa, you hear about the Latinas, you hear about blacks here in the US or Haitians or people from the islands, but you don't hear about people from the Middle East and it infuriates me so badly because I have mm-hmm. friends in the Middle East. Yeah. You know, I I, I don't think it helps that in US politics when we do like the census, Arabs and Iranians both get marked as white. Um, and they're not. I, I, well, it's it's a weird thing. I remember having this conversation with a friend in Armenia. I was in Armenia in 2014. And we were talking about, are Armenians white? Which is just, I mean, this whole question of who is white and who isn't is such a weird thing to right. even discuss. But 
but my my point to her, and she was an Armenian woman who was raised in Turkey, and she saw herself as white. And I'm not going to tell her she's not white. I don't. I, I at the end of the day, I don't even care. Right. But I, what I tried to explain to her was, I think when we in the U.S. when we talk of a lot of racial or ethnic politics, like white versus person of color, I think a lot of times what we're talking about is not about white, and I'm doing air quotes right here, but I don't have my video on or anything, but like, we're not talking about white in terms of Caucasian or in terms of European ethnicity. We're talking about othering people based off of their ethnic background. And so mm-hmm. an Armenian, yes, Armenians are from the Caucasus. Yes, they're quite fair-skinned. Um, yes, they might be what we might call white-passing in U.S. racial discourse. But if you come to the U.S., and you have a thick accent, and you have traditional Armenian culture, people are still going to other you. So you right. might see yourself as white, and that's fine. I don't care at the end of the day. Right. But don't expect to be given all of the privileges of what is white privilege in the U.S., because people aren't going to treat you that way. And I think that becomes the dialogue that really needs to be had, is whether we use the word white, whether we use another word, you know, when we say people of color, I think you're right. Arabs are people of color. Iranians are people of color. Because whether or not they count as white on a census doesn't matter. What matters is how are they being treated in U.S. society. And they're not right. being treated like the way Western Europeans and their descendants are being treated. Right. And, I mean, it's sad because I remember I was talking to two people and they were black. And they were older. And this person might have been a little drunk when they said this, but they still said it to me anyway. They was like, well, you speak Arab, so you're Muslim. What? Yeah, there's always that option. And I'm like, no, I'm Christian, and there are people that are Christian that are Arab. What? Uh, and I got really offended by that because I was like, well, wait a minute. I, you're supposed to be a certain faith in order to speak a certain language. Really? Uh, that's ignorant. Oh, yeah. I actually saw, do you know who Paul, what is Paul's last name? He does, he's oh. the guy who runs Lang Focus. His last name yes, 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 or something yes. like that. Mm-hmm. I always forget his last name, Paul. Uh, so I followed him on Instagram. We've talked once or twice. He's a very nice guy. And um, he posted stuff yesterday, like what he was studying. And he was studying some Hebrew, and he speaks Hebrew. And then, and then he posted stuff about uh, doing Indonesian practice. He was like listening to podcasts. And then his next story was how many times a day people have asked me if I'm Jewish, four. How many times a day people have asked me if I'm Indonesian, zero. And it's interesting, these sort of assumptions that people have about language, like speaking Arabic. You know, it's if you speak Arabic, you're Muslim. If you're white and you speak Arabic, did you convert to Islam? Um, If you study Hebrew, are you Jewish? Um, And I, I actually mentioned this a little bit in my talk during Women in Language because, like... The case of Judaism and Hebrew, for example, it's just because you speak Hebrew, you study Hebrew, doesn't innately mean that you're Jewish. However, right. Hebrew as a language has very close ties to Judaism, and American Jews are raised studying Hebrew at least a little bit traditionally. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. me, I was raised Christian. I'm in the process of converting to Judaism, and studying Hebrew is part of that for me because as a language learner and as somebody who wants to interact more with Judaic texts, they're, you know, it's mostly in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes this, you know, there are these weird sort of links, but they're not always so easily defined. And especially in the case of, like, Arabic, 
there are mm-hmm. Christian Arabs, there are Muslim Arabs, there are atheist Arabs, there are Jewish Arabs, there are, you know, Arabs of all denominations and religious belief and practice or non-practice. And I think a lot of people overlook that. Um, and so, yeah, it's always an interesting point to see that, you know, and I do, I have friends who are white, who studied Arabic, who converted to Islam. Nothing wrong with that. I have friends who are Arabs, who are atheists. Friends who are Arabs who are Quakers. My Arabic professor was a Quaker, um, which was just weird for me. I was like, okay, Christian, yeah. And then she's like, no, 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 we're Quakers. And I was like, there are Quakers in Palestine? She goes, yeah, yeah, there's a whole friend school in Palestine. Her sister runs it. Um, we're used to run it. She's not the director anymore. But there's a friend school in Ramallah, and that's where she, her, her sister used to run the school. Her children grew up going to that school. And so, mm-hmm. to, you know, even for me as somebody who was more open to the idea of like, you know, Arabic speakers can be of any faith or background to then have to be faced with like there are Arab Quakers was still a weird moment for me. So, yeah, there there there's interesting. It's interesting to see the sort of assumptions that people have about religion, about philosophy, about cultural biases, you know, even, you know, like how secular you are, how religious you are, how open minded to certain things you are because of one's linguistic background. Right. And I, you know, it's funny because I always connect with people that I kind of feel they've been oppressed somehow or, mm-hmm. you know, treated like crap. So, yeah. so, I mean, and being African American, being a woman, you know, being a part of the LGBT community in my own right, um, you know, I, you know, I've seen a lot of, you know, division. When it comes down to certain languages, you know, oh, we used to speak Spanish or French. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Well, I love French and I love Spanish, but I really do love French, probably more than Spanish. But (laughs) but at the end of the day, if I want to learn Arabic, I'm not. Are you going to move over there? Like, no. Do you realize we have people that are of Arab descent and that are from the Arab world? that move over here to have a better life and they know English and they probably know English better than you. (laughs) You know, depending on, you know, okay, if you're learning American English or are you learning British English and nine times out of 10 is either, it's one or the other. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so at the end of the day, um, you know, they're, they're very, to me, they're very warm and welcoming people. And I've, I've never gotten anybody that said, you don't need to learn our language. Like, they were so happy I was speaking even a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what to do with themselves. And then they, when I, when they realized I was cooking the food mm-hmm. and then I was visually impaired and I was doing it, that was even, I mean, actually, someone said they felt sorry for me because they wanted to take care of me. And I'm like, wait, why are you feeling sorry for me? I, I'm pretty independent, but I understood after <laughs> learning after learning more about the culture. Okay, that was voiceover <laughs> in the background. I I subscribed to um, um, uh, Moses McCormick's um, YouTube channel. Uh, okay. So okay. and he just he just did a video on Aramaic. Um, did he? I haven't seen it. Yeah. And then he did Sudanese Arabic. He chose that yeah. dialect. And um now I'm just curious, have you touched Sudanese Arabic or did you just stick with the I so 
so I've never personally studied it in any way. Um, I worked with uh, two Sudanese Arabic speakers. I, so I've taught Arabic at the Middlebury Language Schools, mm-hmm. which are these immersion summer programs. I taught there. I was a uh, teaching assistant my first year, and then I taught there my second year um, during the summers. And uh, we create like a full immersion environment for the students. And um, so a couple of the professors there were Sudanese. Um, they also spoke Egyptian. They lived in Egypt for a while. But I do remember once, like, four students and for our own education, they, like, between the two of them, but in public, had a conversation in, like, very local Sudanese. And I remember going, like, oh, wow, that's very different. Because I just always assumed that it was, you know, kind of probably close to Egyptian. It certainly is its own dialect, definitely. Um, but I've never really studied it. I've done... So I did the Levant. I've done all the major Levantine dialects. I've done Iraqi. I've done Egyptian. I've done a little bit of Gulf, like standard Saudi kind of Hejazi dialect. Um, and some Emirati. I've read a little bit about Moroccan. And that's kind of it. Like, things pop up every now and then. Like, I follow some linguists who will talk about Libyan Arabic. Um, you know, like, like weird articles about this specific word in this specific dialect or something. But those right. are the only ones I've really, really, like, sat down with a book and tried to learn a little bit of. Um, so, no, yeah, I've never really done much with uh, with Sudanese. It would be interesting. Um, I remember when I, I first studied Is there an Asimil book for Sudanese Arabic? That's cool. I think, I think that was what he used. Because I, I've gone on the colloquial... Yeah. I've gone on the colloquial languages site... And they had your major ones, your Levantine, your Iraqi, yeah, your Sudanese is not really commonly studied. Right, right. But um, I've I've seen that. But then I, when he said he had like I think Osimo for it or something, I might have to I might yeah, have, might to, have to look. Yeah, because he he on he on his YouTube channel he he did do thirty days of Sudanese or a little bit more than that, uh-huh. and. His Arabic wasn't bad at all. But, yeah, you know, I saw I saw a, a video on his Instagram the other day, or in his story or something, of him reading a sign. Um, I mean, yeah, it's not bad. He's, I mean, he's only been doing it, I think, for 30 days, two months maybe now. Um, right, right. And, you know, he knows his alphabet, he reads, his pronunciation is decent. He has a tendency, I remember this years ago, I saw him study something else maybe and then I, I he he still did this the other day um and i've seen a lot of students do this the for example the the letter i which is the pharyngeal sort of letter there in the back of your throat yeah. a lot of people struggle with it and what happens is once people get it and they find okay the ein is here ein pharynx yeah, yeah. Um, they tend to overpronounce it in the beginning i remember i was in uh we were in bethlehem and uh, mm-hmm. during my spring break in Jordan, and, and we went out as a group, 10 of us left Jordan and went to Israel and Palestine. We, most of our time was in Palestine, in the West Bank. And then we spent a couple of days over on the Israeli side. And um, we were in Bethlehem, and we were looking for a restaurant. And one of the guys in my program, who technically his Arabic was at a higher level than mine, like he knew more, but he had a somewhat thick accent. Uh, when he spoke, he went up to somebody and asked them, like, you know, is there a restaurant nearby? And one, his, he has sort of a weird accent with his vowels. 
two, he was using a rural Jordanian accent, which should be understandable to a Palestinian, but maybe the guy heard Gadib and thought, what, what is this word Gadib instead of Adib or Qadib? Um, right. Because that's not normal Palestinian traditionally. Right. And, um, but he, had, he wanted to ask where a restaurant was, and the word for restaurant in Arabic is Matam. And it has this ayn there. It's the third letter am at the end of it. Except for he was one of these people, and I noticed this with... Oh, uh, yeah, Motam? Yeah, Motam. Right. But it's... uh, Some people overemphasize the ayn. And so, like, my friend was like, Motam. Like, he, he overdid <laughs> it. He was too strong. And the guy's, like, going, what the hell are you saying? And I walked to the guy, and I was like, Fi Matam Adib? Is there a restaurant nearby? And the guy was like, yeah, sure. Um... And I noticed that uh, uh, he was reading uh, in his uh, – what is Lausho's first name again? Joseph? Um, Moses McCormick. Moses. Moses. I'm always like McCormick, and I know him as Lausho, but what is his real name? I know yeah, so many people by, like, by their social media handles that I don't know their real names anymore. Right. right. Uh, so Moses was reading a sign, and his sign was a little bit – Forced. It was a little overpronounced, but that's common. I used to have students do that all the time, especially in the right. beginning. Once you right. find it and you're really trying to hit it, and then it becomes overemphasized. Right. Where you have to learn over time that it it still needs to be there. So I, it's very it's there, but, that, but it, yeah. it doesn't need to be this forced sort of sound. But right. no, because Arabic seems decent so far. He's he's one of those people. I remember when I first started studying languages, what 16 years ago. I saw him online, and he was one of those sort of inspirational moments of okay, like, I can do this as, like, a thing. I've never been somebody to count, to be like, oh, I want to be a polyglot. I want to learn a certain number of languages. Right. I've just loved languages, and I've always wanted to learn more and see more and try something new and something different. Right. Uh, but I do remember seeing his YouTube videos relatively early on um, and being like, oh, there are other people like me, and oh, they're, like, pretty good at this. And, and um, I, there are some things about his method that personally I don't think I agree with, but he's he seems like a really good guy overall. I've never really interacted with him otherwise. Um, but yeah, he I didn't realize he was doing Sudanese. There aren't a lot of books for it, I imagine, but I, I'm sure he found something. He always finds a decent resource when he does stuff. Oh yeah, and he does a lot of language exchanges too. Oh yeah, yeah. He yeah. always does the, I will say that is not me. He goes out. He does the leveling up stuff, and he goes out in public and just talks. And I'm always that nervous person. I do the same thing. I well, I get nervous, and not even nervous like, am I going to sound stupid? I'm always nervous about offending somebody. Like, if I go up to somebody and I know they speak Arabic, and I speak to them in Arabic, are they going to assume that I don't that I think that they don't speak English? Like, and I just don't want to. So I tend to be the very reserved person. I like listen. And I'll speak English with them, and then if they're chatting, like, you know, Arabic um, with, like, somebody nearby with them, I might pop in and say something. Like, I did this once in um, in Indiana. There's a Turkish restaurant, except for all the people in the kitchen are Afghans. And so <laughs> I went up to pay my bill, and I heard them speaking Dari, and I studied Dari in Indiana, and I heard them speaking Dari. And, uh, and I asked the guy who was ringing me up, I was like, yeah, so are you guys... You guys Turkish? Like, it's a Turkish restaurant. I was like, are you from Turkey? And he goes, yeah. And then I flipped into, into Dari, and I'm like, so why are you guys speaking Dari? <laughs> and he was like, what? I was like, oh, come on. This is Indiana University has teaches all these Central Asian languages. You have to have students who come in and speak Turkish or speak Dari. How did you not expect this? <laughs> well, you, you know, <laughs> it's funny you say that. 
it's funny you say that because I remember I had went into um I hadn't been studying Russian very long, like probably six months. And I was at like an A2 level by then, just speaking. I mean, I, I my thing is I like to speak and be understood and to understand other people. So yeah. the reading and writing, to me, that comes later, if, even if I, if that's something I want to pursue at all. So I'd rather speak than sit up there and write to anybody because I'm like, I want to communicate verbally mm-hmm. in the story. So I went into a Victoria's Secret and spoke a little Spanish with this one chick, flipped into English, and then flipped back into Russian, all in the same conversation with <laughs> great ease. And they're like, dude, you're really good. And, and they were like, wait, how long have you been learning Russian? I was like, oh, six months. They were like, oh, I, I, I can imagine what you're going to be like in a year. You're mm. really good. I mean, my grammar sucks. <laughs> but... But I'm, and I'm not afraid to say that, but I'm still understood. I even had a Russian boyfriend for like a while and I met his whole family over Skype, believe it or not. And his mother did not speak English at all, which I actually, I would call this the penny of the wall method where I am pent up against the wall mentally and I'm not allowed to speak English. So I have to use everything that I have in my head of that language with that person. So they can't mm-hmm. have very much English knowledge because once yeah. you start speaking English, I get thrown off. Yeah. So I, that, I, I do I this with it. myself sometimes. Like, yeah. like, like even by myself, you just sort of tell yourself like, okay, we're going to, I'm still washing my hair in the shower. I'm going to talk about this topic in this language and only in this language and just make right. yourself sort of Right. Yeah. So I do that a lot. And I, I, I will do a lot of listening and, you know, uh, to me, I think that's going to be my end of the year goal this year is, you know, to be able to like, now I know I probably will not be able to do a whole episode in Arabic. Um, (laughs) not yet anyway. I, that might be something I do in 2022 because my goal is to be able to speak. Speak it to like at least the B two level, so I can talk about politics. Mm-hmm. I can talk about everything that I want to talk about in mm-hmm. Arabic by then. Um, and you know, then after that, you know, I can I can keep it maintained, and that'd be like language number five that I learned to a high level, and then mm-hmm. the rest of it I'll be like, uh, you know, I might just do conversational for the most part because. I found Arabic to be my new, I call it my new language love. So yeah. all things Arabic, and that even includes food. So, and, um, you know, I eat probably more um, Middle Eastern food now than any other food. And, um, <laughs> you know, because I love it that much. But, um, and, and their hospitality is really great. Like, I met someone that's from, like, Egypt, and they've been here for eight years, and their English is amazing. And it was like, every time you come in here, I'm going to teach you a new word in Egyptian Arabic and a new phrase. I was like, oh, shukran afwan. Subdu- wait, subduti? My friend? Friend in Arabic? Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so I, you know, and it's kind of cool that you don't have to use the articles and there's no articles. And you can just say exactly, you know, mm-hmm. yom bur, 
or Yorm, um, Swarm, or, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, you know, I just like the way that it's, it's all set up, like, in yeah, regards yeah. To, to, to how, you know, when you say something, you know, you don't need yeah. all these extra words and, you know, and you're able to be understood. Now, half the time, you're not saying we, you're not saying they, unless, you know, you're talking about a group of people, but half the time you're using I and you. Mm-hmm. Maybe he and she, depending on, you know, but if you're talking about yourself, you're using I a lot. Yeah. You know, so for me, you know, I'm just like, okay, I, you know, I'll keep going with, because right now I'm learning. I'm using um, Michelle Thomas, and I'm using um, the Mango app for um, Levantine Arabic, because that seems to be um, easier for me. Like, I'll go over, even though I went over the first couple chapters, I'll go over that again, just to make sure that I I have it down. Yeah. You know, because some people don't just do it, and then Mm -hmm. they'll forget a lot of it. And then they won't even go back over the earlier stuff, you know. Yeah. But aside from that, you know, um, I love talking about this world. And I, I actually want to see if I can interview more people, more Arab mm-hmm. people who speak Arabic or, you know, they're polyglots in their own right. Because yeah. nobody's being nobody's being featured. It's mm-hmm. everybody. It's either you have a couple people that were from Asia you have a few people from Latin America. You have a lot of people from Europe. You have some people from Canada. A couple people from the U.S. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't hear nothing about the Arab world. Yeah. You know, and, and I just I want to I want to be able to have them represented in some way. Yeah, I think that's a good goal to have. There needs to be more representation. Yeah, because I mean their culture is like amazing. Like people don't realize that the wheel was made in freaking Egypt. Like they don't, you know, people don't realize that paper was made in 150 BCE and you know in China. Mm-hmm. And you know, pe- people take stuff for granted. Like oh yeah, there's so many inventions and advancements in science and medicine that came out of the Arab world. Right. Um, and larger, you know, the Muslim world, like the Arab Iranian world in the post Islamic era, like uh, so much stuff came in astronomy and medicine and optics. Um, right. The number zero comes out of the Arab. I mean, literally, the word zero comes from Arabic. Um, right. But like, the concept of zero, I think, came out of India and then passed through the Arab world into Europe. There are a lot of contributions from the Arab world and the greater sort of. Middle East, Western Asia region uh, that have fundamentally and indelibly changed history. Um, so yeah, there way, there needs to be way more representation about it. I think both in general, but also yeah, like in our community and in podcasting and stuff. I mean, because I mean, there are a few people that have some podcasts, but it's like from their perspective, like you know, I forgot who the one chick is, but she has a podcast based off of her own experience of learning Arabic. But when you're talking about like Maha, for instance, like I'm, I, I'm subscribed to her, her, uh, you know, her channel. Yeah. Her Uh YouTube channel. And then 
She, I think she has. Wait, no, I don't know if she has a podcast. I don't um, think she does. She has YouTube, she has Instagram, and she has a book or two now. Right. I, I don't think she's done a podcast. And she teaches. Like, you can go to. Right. You you can go to Palestine and take classes with her during the summer. She goes back to Bethlehem and teaches. Um. Then then I know Mark Hansham. He does his own YouTube channel, and um, I mean, but then there's there's a few other people that's in the Arab world. A couple guys do mm-hmm. it too. I forgot their name. Yeah, I've seen a few but, recently on Instagram, like who teach Jordanian and Syrian Arabic. Right. But that's all, you know, they they give private lessons, they have an Instagram, but, you know, I don't think they're podcasting or they're doing a lot more than that. Right. But I think it's growing a little bit more, but, yeah, you're right. It's it's certainly an underrepresented region. Right. And, I mean, for me personally, it's like I kind of am one of those people, I like to look for the underdogs and mm-hmm. the, the people that you're not getting. I mean, because I was a guest on – actual fluency i was a guest on the fluent show you know i did a speed talk last year a lightning talk for women in language you know i did in international podcast day on wednesday and now i'm going to be speaking at this year's polyglot conference online talking about my language learning journey you know in 30 minutes but for me personally it's like i kind of feel like it's you know, people talk about, well, people of color need to be, especially black people need to be represented. And I said, well, okay, I believe black people need to be represented just like anybody else needs to be represented in the polyglot community. But I also believe all people of color, whether you're black, Latina, Asian, or Arab, they all need to be represented. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, because it's it's like you don't feel, you kind of feel like it's, disclaimer here white centric only yeah and male centric only I, I think that's true i think it is a predominantly white male community you know at least at least that's what it feels like you're right those are the people who get a lot of facetime um yes but i mean even myself like you know and i've tried to be more open and see chat see chat well, seek out or search for um, other queer creators or creators of color. Uh, I think a lot of the recent politics in the U.S. has sort of brought a lot of that to the surface. Like, there are some creators, like um, Jeremy Linguist, I've been following for a little while, and somebody else. And then when a lot of the recent U.S. politics and the Black Lives Matter movement started got it bigger, there was an even larger movement online to be like, hey, let's focus and sort of hold up these creators of color and these polyglots of color. And so, and there were so many that I'm like, I did, I've never seen them before. And they're mostly, a lot of them are black women. And it's like, right. you know, these women, I'm sure they, I mean, they've been around for years. The, the, these, this is their career. This is what they're doing. And they've never shown up on my feed before. So I think you're right. It's, it's not that, that, that they're not there. It's that they're not being given the attention and the spotlight that they deserve and that they need. Um, And that's something I think we have to actively work towards. We have to actively, you know, shine a light on these creators. Um, But I think you're right, too. I think at the same time, though it is important that we do all of that, I think you're right that the focus has been recently on 
black creators, and that's great, but, you know, we should also be looking at where are our Arab creators and our Middle Eastern creators, our Iranian creators, you know, other people of color who aren't getting the recognition so, that they deserve. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, like, it's kind of funny because, you know, and I've noticed this, like, just being in different groups on Facebook, which I've left a lot of groups because of it. You know, you you see all these people that are learning languages, and 90% of them are Caucasian. Um, you know, um, the, the um, what do you call it? The admins and moderators are mostly Caucasian, so there's no, like, real diversity, mm-hmm. um, you know. Um, and if you do come out and you funnel down, funnel down, funnel go to bed. My guide dog. Um, <laughs> my yellow Labrador retriever. He's getting old. He's going to be eight soon. Oh, wow. Yeah, we've been together for six years now. But I'm I'm considering getting a successor dog in another two years because um, he's getting older and I'm probably going to retire him in the next year and a half, two years, so he can enjoy his retirement. But um, yeah, she to me, I kind of feel like they don't. It's it's almost like they. Feel like they have all the answers for language learning. Or if you have a difference of doing things, like for me, I have to ask people all the time, can you please, if you post a picture with text, can you please type in the description box what this is? Because my software cannot read this because it's a scan JPEG file, number one. And when it's scanned, it's not going to pick it up. But if you type and say this is what this says, then the person that has the screen reader can pick up the words you typed. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take that much for people to do this. But a lot of it's because they're ignorant, they're lazy, and they don't want to do it. But yet, if you leave out any details, which I've done before, then they didn't want it taken down. They want to talk down to you and act like you're inferior to them and you know and I've literally had to uh, leave groups because it was just out of control the, yeah. the bullying and the, well I think a lot of times people I think people often don't I think we like to talk about inclusion especially like for example, I'm white and I was born biologically male. And even those of us who are open-minded, we like to talk about inclusion, but we often don't realize or are not comfortable with recognizing that creating inclusion, creating equality might mean that we have to give up some of our space or some of our privileges. Um, you know, so for example, you know, in your example, was like, is it that hard to add a caption that includes what's in the image? No. But people don't want to put forth that extra effort. It's one thing to say, oh, I didn't even think about that. Like, honestly, it's something that I haven't really thought about. And now I'm like, okay, well, if I ever post something that has more text in it, I really should do that. And usually I, I'm trying to think in the past, if it's in a foreign language, I do. 
so that there's right. a translation and stuff. But if it's something in English, I, I might not. And so this is something that I need to be aware of. But once you're made aware of it, if you're not doing it, then that's probably an active thing. And I, you know, I've seen this in terms of gender, like being even in queer spaces, but in queer spaces, white gay men are usually the majority, or at least right. they get to have the power or they take the power. And I was recently in a queer space where that was obvious. And I, as a woman and as a trans person, made a comment mm-hmm. about that. And it wasn't so much white gay men. They were ethnically diverse and racially diverse, but it was still gay men, gay cis men. Mm-hmm. And multiple women, like cis women who were lesbians, cis bisexuals, trans folk, non-binary people, trans women. You know, we were all, we all had made comments here and there. And a lot of us had become less active in that environment and in that group. And then... A couple of times some of us said things and then I recently started saying more because I started seeing very sort of sexist content both in the group and on these admins like personal accounts and again not this sort of overt sexism of like women are inferior but like sort of that uh, jokey gay cis man sexism of like ew vaginas are gross and you're like okay I get that you're not attracted to women or you're not attracted to biological females but like, do you have to be an asshole about it kind of thing? Right, and right. And I started bringing it up and mentioning, like, hey, I'm seeing a lot of this either overt sexism or less overt sexism, and it's making some of us uncomfortable, or you guys are posting a lot of stuff about, like, you know, gay men and gay sex or whatever, and I'm not saying that that's wrong, I'm not judging you for it, but it makes me feel like I'm less part of this community. And then one of them had the nerve to be like, oh, so what do you want us to do? Like, shut down and, like, do this or whatever? And then, like, later in a different group, after I had left that group, that person accused me of, like, starting divisiveness and being, like, somebody who's just looking to always criticize. And I'm like, is it so hard for you to step outside of yourself and think about the way other people feel? Right. Like, you know, it's not that, like, I understand, like, you might be upset. You know, it's part of, you know, like, addressing racism. Addressing racism is going to make white people uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable because it makes me reflect on my own actions and go, have I said something that, if not overtly racist, maybe showed a prejudice that I was raised with, something that I need to address within myself? You know, this is part of learning and growing as human beings, but that's going to be an uncomfortable process. And a lot of people just don't want to be uncomfortable and they'd rather just be mean about it. And unfortunately, that's how some people are, but it makes it difficult for the rest of us at times. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's so funny because in the language space, you know, people talk about, oh, well, this is a very inclusive and safe space. And, oh, and <laughs> me, me and a whole bunch of people were like, that's not true. Yeah. I see that a lot you, in the queer community, too. It's we're all inclusive. We all love each other. And I'm like, have you heard the things that some of us have said to each other? Have you heard some of the awful things that trans women have been that have been said to trans women by cis queer people, by gay men, by lesbians, by just cis people in general, just because we're an inclusive environment or we're supposed to be this big loving family does not mean that that's the case. Right, um, right. And, you and, know, and that's and in also, the polyglot community and in the queer community. Right. And I, you know, it's fun. Have you heard of the French, the French um, polyglot? His name is, I think it's Angel or something? Or um, um, not all the time I had. I'm trying to think. I may have seen him. Yeah. Well, he's a part of my. He's a part of my group. I sent you an invite too, if you want to. Yeah, um, I'm not on Facebook as much as I should be, but yes, I will. I will look for that invite. Angel Preto. 
Is yes, yes. Frenchfluency.net? Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've yeah, seen so, him on Facebook before. He looks familiar. I forgot his name, but yeah, I've seen him around. Uh huh. Well, him, him, yeah, he was one of the first people to join my group. And him and him and a whole bunch of other people I had, I had taught, you know, asked. And I sat there and I said, I said, well, thank you. And he was like, well, see, I find what you have to say to be really valuable. And if there's anything I can do to help you, you know, let me know. Because, I mean, I went into other people's groups. Like, I was a part of Jimmy Mello's group. I was a part of the Polyglot the actual Polyglot group. I was a part of Ollie Richards' group. But then I left all three because people were just bashing too much. And it was too... You know, and, and if you deviate from what other people are doing, you're really outside the box, and I am outside the box. Because yeah. I, don't, I don't learn the same way as everybody else does, and I have my own opinion about language learning, and I'm not going to always agree with whoever. Mm-hmm. I will agree to disagree, but I'm not going to sit there and, and fold in my beliefs and change who I am because you don't, or, you know, you can't understand where I'm coming from, or you think that I'm less intelligent because I can't read uh, a book very well, well, guess what? So what? It's not like I've never had print in my life. I have. Yeah. I just can't read it today. There's a big difference. So. Well, and that's not something you have control over. Like Exactly. It's, it's, so, it's one thing to judge somebody for being intentionally monolingual or intentionally doing something that you disagree with. It's another thing to be like, let me judge you for things that you cannot control. Like, come on. People are... And, and, I, and, I, and I, I mean, I hate to say this, but there are a lot of people in the polyglot community that have disabilities. Mm-hmm. And a lot of I them are neurological. There's a lot of people that have... They're on the autism spectrum. They either have ADHD or ADD, you know, or something else going on. But yeah. it's it's not so much a visual. It's more, you know, in the head. Oh, yeah. And I, I said... I've had this conversation with a lot of people, yeah. Yeah. And I said, I've worked with all kinds of people that have all kinds of disabilities. So I, I can pick out who has what with just having a conversation. Or, you know, it's not that hard. So, for me, I'm not going to judge you because of this reason, that reason. But if you're going to, you know what, my technology doesn't work all the time. I dictate a lot of my stuff. I try to edit the best I can. Yeah. Um, so forth and so on. Don't judge me. Yeah. I'm Like, Either. you messaged me the other day and my name was misspelled. But I'm right. not going to sit there and be like, when you do voice attacks, if you say Aaron, it could be with an E, it could be an AA. I'm not sitting there going... This girl purposely misgendered me and used the male spelling of my like really like who okay, who, has to, who has time to be that much of an asshole to like get picky over these things? Oh, you should know. <laughs> oh, I've I know. Got, plenty of people, I've, plenty I've, people make time for that. <laughs> but, well, you know, I won't mention this person by name, but I will say that this person, this person, I I literally had to block because they corrected every single grammatical spelling that I had because I was dictating uh-huh. and I told them that my phone was like you know it was an iPhone success but you know I had it for a while so it wasn't working correctly and I had to wait to get me a new phone uh-huh. when I could afford one 
And I purposely waited until the iPhone 11 came out, and then I got me a new phone. Mm -hmm. However, you're still going to have technology issues because technology doesn't always work 100% of the time anyway. Exactly. And so I turned around and I got up. I said, well, wait a minute. I'm not criticizing you and your ego. You know, you talk to me like I'm stupid. I have a college education. I've lived in eight states. I've been to 28 states plus Canada, all before I was 40. You know, I'm the first to graduate college from my family on my mother's side, and I'm disabled. So I'm not living in a group home. I'm living in my apartment with my dog based off my income, and I'm living my life. You know, it's okay. I can't afford to go. All over the world. I don't have that kind of money. So the yeah. fact that we're able to do these conferences now online is a godsend for a lot oh, of people. Oh, I was so happy about that because I don't get to go to a lot of these events either because I was raised very poor. And then when I went to college, it was always on scholarship or some loans. Right. I, I've traveled a fair amount, but it was always, again, like I got scholarships to study abroad. I got scholarships to study a lot of my languages. And then when right. I was in graduate school, you know, a PhD student's living stipend is minimal. So I had people who were like, oh, like the year the Polyglot Conference was in New York. I had people going like, oh, well, it's in New York. You live in Los Angeles. You can make it. And I'm like, I no, live in Los Angeles on like barely any money because PhD students make nothing. Like, even if I could afford the airfare, I can't afford lodging in New York for a whole weekend. Right. You know? And now I'm very thankful to say that, like, you know, now that I've left academia, as much as I miss it sometimes, like I work as, as a translator and interpreter, I make much better money. And so I have the ability to travel a bit more. But right. it's still like, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly. And it's the same thing with, you know, I have friends who are like, well, you know, we'll go like go to that country for the summer and do that. And I'm like, who can afford to do that? And some people can. And that's great. If you have that opportunity, take it. Right, right. I think we sometimes need to recognize in our community that it's not everybody's rich. Yeah, well, it's not life in general. It's not an equal playing field, and I think we right. need to remember that sometimes. Like, you know, it's part of what makes me very proud of what I do because, you know, I speak French, you know, functionally fluently. I have a degree in French. I've, you know, lived with French speakers. Right. Um, and when I speak French, people assume that I studied abroad in France somewhere or something. Right. And mm-hmm. I, the I had never been to France prior to 2014, and at that point I was in Paris for 23 hours for a layover, and I was like, I'm getting out of the airport and I'm going into Paris and I'm seeing France, and that's all that I've ever done, you know. And in the Arab world, I have friends who have traveled and lived all throughout the Arab world. I got four and a half, five months in Jordan. That's it. And, and and I don't say that to, like, be arrogant, but I think it is also something to consider that some of us have different circumstances and we've had to make right. the most of it. And I'm very proud of what I've made of my circumstances. And I'm very, exactly. you know, content in, in, in where I've gotten in life with that. Um, right. And that's something that we often don't consider is we often just... You know, or other people often assume, like, well, well, you know, why didn't you live abroad? Why didn't you do more? Why can't you do? And I'm like, I didn't have that money. I didn't have those opportunities. And not everybody right. has. Well, and, and then if you have people, now, I mean, most people, they work, they have families, they have, 
you know, all this stuff going on. Well, if we can make it, yes, but you don't understand. A passport costs $135. Exactly. You know, not everybody can afford a passport right now. Okay. Yeah. If I wanted to go to Japan, that would have been a $1,000 round trip ticket. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yes, that's just the ticket. That doesn't include food, lodging. Uh, lodging, anything. Like, this year's Polyglot Conference in Mexico, I was super happy about because I was like, I'm finally in a job where I make more money. And Mexico's close to Florida. I can probably do this whole trip for less than a thousand dollars, and I might be able to barely swing that. And I know people who would be like, "How can you not swing eight hundred dollars?" I'm like, not everybody has a lot of 800. money, right? Like I used to, because I'm on disability, so I, and I, I don't, I don't have any shame mm-hmm. in putting that out there. Okay, I live in low income housing based off my income, and I live off of 1k a month and that's even including food so by the time i'm done paying for the bare minimum you know everything i gotta pay for that includes my dog mm-hmm. i'm living like 200 dollars max we ain't talking about transport well actually i did add transportation and laundry in there um so we're not talking about if i need to buy code we're not talking mm-hmm. about if i need to buy other necessities or you know whatever so I like to know how I'm supposed to save money to go to X, Y, and Z if you're yeah. living, you see what I'm saying? Like, in, yeah. oh, well, why can't you work? I did that, but in the U.S. it's kind of hard. People like to discriminate if you're legally blind. So for me, it's a little bit different. You know, I'm lucky I have an affiliate marketing contract with Michelle Thomas, but I had to create a podcast show in order to prove my value in this community. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So it's not like I have a course. It's not like I wrote a book. It's not like I, I I'm, you know, I have a website. I can't even afford a website. <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, people, people, I, you know, they, they become really, I, a lot of them understand, but there's a, no, it's clear that the pace that we already is Okay. <laughs> yes, see, it's funny. That's my iPad Pro. I And I have voiceover on, so everything talks. Yeah. And people are like, well, how do you, how do you learn? I was like, audio, immersion. Mm-hmm. I do the immersion method. Everything. So, yeah. for me, that works, but you know, I also tell people I'd be realistic on my show. I've come across a few people I've interviewed, and when I hung up the phone, I felt like crap mm. because it was like, okay, it might have sounded great, but then in the back of my head, will I ever interview you ever again? Yeah, maybe not. You know, I mean, because some people come off snobbish. Yeah, because, I think oh, I do think that this is one way that like. If if we can talk about is there an upside to the pandemic this year, which it's hard to even think of because of how of all the negatives that have come with it, I think right. in some ways it has made people more aware of you know I, like oh we could do conferences online, which granted li- women in language was doing before the pandemic, but right. you know I would hope to see that like next year with Polyglot Conference. You know, if we actually get to have it in person in Cholula, 
could they still live stream it? Could we have some speakers still be coming in via live stream? Because accessibility isn't just about, you know, or gathering isn't just about health. It's about, you know, like, you know, I have a friend who is wheelchair dependent and it's like, how is that person supposed to, you know, they have to do all these extra things to be able to go to a conference and make sure it's accessible for them and everything. Oh, yeah. Or for people who are from low incomes, you know, and I, I think in some ways the pandemic has sort of opened people's eyes to, you know, we can do things online or, you know, people like you and me who don't get to travel that much. I've, I've had the fortune to be able to travel. I've had opportunities through through studying and through scholarship. But outside right. of that, I haven't really had a lot. And, you know, so what did, you know, like this is what my childhood was, was I, you know, knew people and I have colleagues and friends who are like, yeah, you know, my sophomore year of high school, they got to go to France for the summer. And I'm like, you know what I did during the summer? I worked at a grocery store and then I went home and I read my French textbook to teach myself French. And I think people are getting more of a taste of what right. is it to have more restrictions in your life. And this is what like low income people deal with. And so right. I'm hoping that that's one of the more positive changes that will come out of this year is making things more accessible to people from all over, no matter their financial right. ability, no matter their physical ability, you know, whatever. Right. right. And I, you know, I know people that said they lived in Asia. They were like, I don't think they realize they want to invite all these people to come. Now I've been a champion for this online thing since the beginning. Mm-hmm. And and people just didn't want to do it. Like I don't know why they just thought. I was like, well, do you understand that not everybody can afford to come? All the no one has pa- realistically no one has passports. Ninety mm-hmm. percent of the American people in this country don't even own a passport. Uh, technically, you would need to leave the country. You know how much history we have in our own country. Oh yeah. Like, Oh my God! Like, but but see, this is the problem. It's like, oh well, you can count, sir. Well, okay, I'm legally blind. I'm not saying that blind people haven't traveled around the world. They have totally yeah. blind people. I'm yeah, obviously. But if you have a guide dog, you have to have the shots. You have to have certain papers. Mm-hmm. You have to yeah, make especially sure going wherever internationally you're, with a guide dog. Right. Exactly. You have to, um, you know. Get all this stuff done. Now, because of the whole laws and the, you know, you taking your dog on a plane, you have to have three pieces of paper filled out, one by the vet, two by the people at the place. Then they have, at the airport, then they have to determine if you can take your dog or not because Uh of all the people that were abusing the policy about their emotional support dogs. Well, first of all, that is not a guide dog. A guide dog is a mobility aid that a blind person that has really good traveling skills and has been selected to go to a particular school that they apply to, go for two to four weeks for training, and then they graduate. Then they come back and, you know, they live their lives and travel all over the place. Yeah. Well, there's a big difference. It's supplying a particular skill set. Or sets of skills. Uh-huh. An emotional support dog is just basically a companion dog for you to have because right. you might have PTSD or you might have anxiety or depression or something. You can't take the dog everywhere with you like you do a, a guide dog. That's totally different. You cannot take the dog with you to the doctor's office. 
Yeah. You know, I can't. So there's a big difference. But now that they've abused the system, now they have all these new rules put in the place. And depending on the airline, they're even talking about if they weigh too much, you can't take it. And I said, no, you're de- you're denying a person their rights under the ADA. Yeah. And that's wrong. So for me personally, you know, I'm glad I created my show because I get to educate a lot of these people that don't really know. And some of this is not any fault of their own, but because I've been exposed to all kinds of people all my life, I see a person as a person. Whether you have a disability, whether your sexual orientation, whether you're broke, whether you're rich, I don't care. You're a person. You know, that's what matters at the end of the day. Not how many countries your passport has, not how many languages you speak, not how much money you got. To me, it's just like I'm kind of seeing two sides of it. I see the affluent side. Now, don't get me wrong. Most of these people do have jobs and they do work. So I do understand that. And I do understand that most of them have kids and stuff. So I definitely understand that aspect of it. But you have to realize, too, nobody's going to pay $1,000 to go to Greece, for example, and then pay another $1,000 for a retreat for a week. Yeah. Now, and then you want... Right, right. So... No one has that kind of money just to toss out. Oh, if I go on vacation, I have, it take, it'll take me 10 months just to save up for my portion of the hotel, my flight, especially if it's in state, transportation. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you have door-to-door transportation as a prime example, you can transfer it to the nearest city in the nearest state and use mm-hmm. it instead of using a shuttle so you're saving a lot of money that way but i mean you still gotta plan that out like a week in advance or two weeks in advance or from you coming to the city and the state for which you're going to so forth and so on unless you have friends or whatever but otherwise you know this is what you have to do and i think a lot of times you know people seem to forget you know finances are a big deal and that's even including with language products you know, everybody wants you to buy their book or everybody wants you to buy their product and use their product or endorse it or whatever. And I don't mind endorsing your books because I re- I can use them, but I'm not going to buy something if I already know how to learn a language myself. Yeah. yeah I, mean, that's, I, I definitely get behind as well, like because I was the kid who, because we were poor, like I would go to the library and just check out book after book to study languages. And now right. that I'm like... I want to write my own Arabic textbook and I want to do this stuff, but I'm also like, how do I make this accessible to people? You know, I can't publish a book for free because that means I have to pay for it and I don't have that money. But what, you know, what price point is accessible for people? And my, my, my term in my head is always like 20 bucks. If it's more than 20 bucks, people aren't going to spend money on it. You know, unless right. I mean, if it's, if it's, if it's like a hardback book, I know someone, they had a hardback book. It was $35. If they, had a paper, if, if they had if they had a paperback book, it was like fifteen, yeah. and if they had an ebook, it was about ten. Yeah, I think I think those are good price points. But you see a lot of books, not even like uh, to learn a language, but books about language learning, and they're more expensive than that. And I'm like, your products aren't accessible to people. You're you are you are keeping 
average folks or people who are in financial hardship from accessing these things, from accessing, well, my English, from accessing these things. And that's not fair either. So how do we create a more accessible world, not just in terms of, you know, disability or be it physical or neurological or race or identity of any sort, but also I think people often don't consider things like financial accessibility. Right. And I mean, like, okay, I had, I I wanted to read the book, um, um, Thai, Cracking Thai Fundamentals by Suji Raj. He had made it a long time mm-hmm. ago. But he said oh, because yeah. of the oh, whole... He was one of those people from early on that I always looked up to. He's great. I <laughs> interviewed him last year, and we became really good friends. He's awesome. Yeah. And um, so I... There's a few people, and I do have to admit this, like, I am very picky about who I consider a polyglot friend. You know, I can interview you a couple times. I can find you to be interesting. But personally, it's like, okay, uh, if we don't connect, I'm, you know, it's someone I know in the polyglot community, you know. Yeah. But, But otherwise, like, he was one of those people that stood out to me, just like Moses and yeah. um, Vladimir Scoltetti and and Luca Lambriello, which I, I, I adore immensely. Um, you know, I, I enjoy Steve Kaufman a lot. Um, now, I will say this. There is, I do have a, a couple people. I, I would love to interview Noam Chomsky and I would love to interview Professor Arguelles, Alexander Arguelles. Yeah. Um, now that's somebody I would like to pick their brain. Um, I actually, I actually dabbled in some, what was it? I, uh, finished last year for a little while. And because I watched his, his whole entire series on how he learned Finnish over in Finland, he had a Finnish name. They had the credentials with his Finnish name. He would do 12 hours a day of wow. nothing but Finnish. And I mean, literally, okay, you're learning the different the different leaves and the different parts of the tree and different yeah. plants in, in Finnish from somebody giving you a guided tour of the freaking forest in Finnish. And I was <laughs> like, I would, I would have given my left and right arm to be over there, not oh, speaking right. <laughs> English. It was like, Finnish is hard. And I'm like, people say Arabic, Russian, Mandarin, Korean, Japanese, Hindi, and you know, Thai are difficult, but honestly, you know, I, I'm one of those people, I'm an optimist. Yeah. So I look at it like, okay, I don't think anything's difficult unless you try it. I wouldn't base it off of what someone else said because yeah. your experience with it is going to be totally different than somebody else's. Well, the writing system is, I'm not referring to the writing system. I don't want to write in a language. I want to speak it. <laughs> so if I'm going to speak it, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be literate. You know, I just want to have a conversation and be able to talk to somebody and other than using English all the time. So that that's a big thing for me personally. Like, you know, I'm the one where let's talk about the pronunciation of the language. Let's talk about listening comprehension because a lot of a lot of learners of a language, that's the last thing they want to do is focus on the listening when it should be the first thing that you do because you need to know how it sounds. And not at a slow speed either. 
at no, at a normal speed. pace. Yeah. Right. Because people don't speak. They're not going to slow their speech down for you unless they understand that you really don't understand. But, um, you know, once you get it all in your ear, you'll start to really understand it. I mean, if your head pops and you're able to understand what's being said right then and there, that's a eureka moment. And that's a good thing to be proud of. But, you know, to be in a a chat group and say, I want to I want to speak with you. Okay, that doesn't mean you're writing everything out. I can't. I know. I want to I want to verbally speak and I want to hear you verbally speak. So I can listen to your accent and how you pronounce the words. Not, I want to read what you say or have voiceover read what you said. I'm, you know, no, no, <laughs> that's not me. But, but I, I, I stopped doing conversation exchanges because of that. Um, that's all they want to do. Or they were yeah. so insecure about their own ability. I was like, well, why can't we just speak? You don't have to. No one speaks perfect anything. Even native speakers of English don't speak perfect English. There's no such thing, you know. So getting people to have more confidence in themselves, you know, I I try to encourage that because, like, you're not beating. You need to stop beating yourself over the head mentally. I mean, who are you trying to impress and why are you doing this for? (laughs) You know, because it's not for you, then why are you doing it? Yeah. You know, and and that's that's a big issue, I think. And then, you know, it, whether you're learning Arabic or you're learning Mandarin or whatever, you know, you you have to know why and for how long, because it's going to take a while. You know. So, but oh, I was going to say to end this. Oh. What? I wasn't sure, but I'm like, it's almost, we've been talking for almost three hours, and I need to use the rest. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Oh, my God. No, 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 no. Just kind of well, you know, I, I tell people that all the time. <laughs> you know, also, there would be, like, an hour and not even realize, because I'm on Skype, so if I were to do this yeah. on, like, at Anchor, you would, I would be able to tell how many minutes we were. Yeah. Yeah, but, oh, no um, so... Where can people find you if they want to? Um, so I am most active on Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. I do. There, there's a Facebook page and a Twitter account. All, all of it is Polyglot Aaron with an E, so E R I N on the Aaron. Um, okay. But I'm most active on Instagram. My uh, podcast, which is called Exhaling Words, uh, which will be out probably, hopefully, in two weeks. We're prepping graphics and websites and stuff um will be out theoretically everywhere instagram or not instagram <laughs> spotify itunes well you know anywhere you can listen to a podcast um but until then if people follow me on instagram that i post i post a picture maybe every week or every two weeks but i'm in my stories every single day there's stuff about what languages and am i working on cultural stuff um everything so that's probably the best place to find me is instagram and then eventually in the podcasting world um, in the next by the by the end of the month it should be out by the end of october so. well i know to subscribe to it because i i'm i've been looking for new stuff to listen to like i i'll i've actually stopped listening to certain people yeah just because yeah. after a while it's like i already know how to learn a language. i mean i i know i've been know how to 
do it, you know. Exactly. I'll do it for support reasons, but after a while, yeah. it's just like, uh, yeah. I'm bored. Well, the goal of my podcast, I mean, like I said earlier about everything that I put out, is I've never wanted to be the let me teach you how to learn language kind of person. Right. Uh, I think plenty of people do that very well. Um, you know, I'm not even good when people are like, what methods do you use? I just do what I do, and sometimes it works for me, and sometimes I have to try something new. So that's not my right. style. Um, right. What I've heard over the years on Instagram from people is they really just like, I tend to be very raw and honest on Instagram. I'll get on and I'll rant about things or I'll share my own, you know, struggles, you know, having ASD and having, you know, an anxiety attack about stuff and overthinking my languages and not getting to study and just a lot of life stuff. Right. And um, so when I decided to, I, you know, not, I, I tried YouTube. I did some YouTube videos. I hate dealing with all the editing. And so I was talking to a friend and said, you know, what about podcasting? I like to talk. I don't have to worry about editing or how I look. And they're like, yeah, right. I think you do great at podcasting. And I was like, can we just do a podcast called like Aaron's Brain, where I just talk for like 30 minutes or an hour and it's just, you know, a waterfall of words kind of thing. Um, I sort of stole the idea in a way from there's a YouTuber that I like who does social stuff and YouTube mm -hmm. things called D'Angelo Wallace. And mm -hmm. he has two channels, but on one of his channels, he does a series where they're always 10 minute videos. And at the end of the 10 minute videos, he goes, and now I have 10 minutes of content. And so like, comment, subscribe, whatever. And so I found it funny. Like he just let himself do whatever he wanted for 10 minutes. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I just want to be honest, talk about hey, this week I've been pondering a lot about this word or this concept in language learning or this weird thing about Arabic or why Turkmen might be in an important language in the future. You know, so because my whole world is my professional and my personal life revolves around languages and linguistics and Western Asia and Central Asia, that's mm -hmm. generally, but it's pretty much just me talking for 30 minutes to an hour every single week about whatever's right. on my mind. Um and so, yeah, so that'll be, it's called X-Family Words. And in the first episode, I'll explain why I chose that name. And, uh, yeah, that'll be out in a couple weeks, hopefully. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you for talking to me. Uh, this will probably be the second longest interview I've done. I mean, Spider-Man <laughs> School so was just as long. No, it's okay. Because, you know what? I don't I do can talk. Editing. You can talk. So, yeah. Yeah, well, the, I, that was the thing. I listened to a couple of your episodes, and I was like, she doesn't edit. And I was like, so I have to make sure I don't mess up or say something inappropriate. Or well, well or no, you know what? I don't edit, but you know what? I almost have 16,000 people. So basically, Sometimes they understand. Right. You know, they don't want this finalized product. They want to hear what do you think and what do you really say? Curse words, mistakes, less than popular opinions, whatever. Right. People want to see right. real people. And, and that's what right. I want to do with my podcast, so. I mean, because I'm now in 111 countries and 42 states. I only have eight more left, and I'm done. Mm -hmm. So so for me personally, I look at it like this. I've only been out for 29 months. That's great. So, And, and I have 185 episodes. But I'm very persistent. Like, I remember Kirsten said to me, she was she, – because we were, we were doing the uh, – we were doing the international podcast day event on, on – Wednesday, and I was invited. Now, I mean, I was shocked out of my gourd that I was invited to be on a panel to talk about language learning podcasts because, you know, I really don't take myself that seriously, but, you know, someone liked what I, what I was doing and invited me to come on, so I was very happy about it. 
I accepted it. However, you know, I kind of felt a little intimidated because, you know, like I said, I might have a little bit of teaching experience, but not as much as a lot of other people. So for me, you know, I stuck to what it was that I was familiar with and why I created my podcast for, you know, to have people learn more about language learning from someone that's visually impaired and, you know, the struggles of that and, you know, interview other people that might be visually impaired, other people in general that, that you know, are in the language space, whoever it is, and see what happens. And evidently people like it because I keep getting more and more people slowly, but I'm fine with that. I really don't pay attention to the numbers. You know, I might not make a dime off of it, but I'm happy, you know, doing what I do. Right. But when someone says, well, she puts out an episode every 20 minutes. (laughs) And it's like, no, I don't, actually. But But I put out a lot. Which means a lot. Right. Right. And I mean, I'm actually, I'm going to be speaking at the Polyglot Conference. I hope you come. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm not going to get to present, but I will buy a ticket soon and probably attend. Um, you don't, you don't necessarily have to buy a ticket. They're taking donations, even oh. in the smallest amount. And if, if you don't even, if you can't afford to donate, you still can sign up and, and participate. Oh, then I will definitely have to do that. Yeah, because I'm actually going to cover all ten days on my show, as by my experience of each day and oh. what I thought of it. And for my show, because I did the same thing with women and language because I had never done it before. So, so, yeah. So you have to come because I'll probably see you somewhere in the chat. Yeah. (laughs) Can I say hi? Exactly. So, say, Um, um, And we will talk soon, I hope. Um, um, Awe? Yes. Awe, uh. Awe, nu, wait. Nuha, nu, wait. Nuha, nuhe? Not, ah, why do I keep, ah. I'm trying to say, yes, we will, but. Nuhna? Nehna? Oh, Uri? Uh, the need is we want to, but right. yeah. Um, I would say yeah, like yes, we'll talk. Iwa, hanehki or rahnehki in Levantine. Okay. We'll talk. Shukran. Yeah, shukran, Have a good night. Bye. <laughs>